ladies and gentlemen, here we are returning to Esoteric America. Well, we never left because we live here, but Roman and Chad don't. <laughs> live where we're going to be talking about today, somewhere where Tara and I actually were. This afternoon, we went and got some coffee in New Haven, Connecticut. That's where we'll be uh, books. focusing. We Yeah, well, I always get books. It's a bane of uh, my <laughs> habits here. I mean, we're just uh, piling books up. Pretty soon, we're going to fall through into our neighbor's apartment below us. But it's very stereotypical <laughs> of us. Rumple still skin on the books, man. I got a lot of books. But speaking of got, having it all figured out, Roman Merrill joins us here today uh, from his yep. lovely <laughs> yoga studio there uh, on the farm. It's It seems like this will be one of the uh, last few uh, episodes broadcasted from the farm. Are you feeling uh, ready Ooh, to, that's to, right. to change locations, Roman? I'm so ready. I am so ready, my friends. Yes. Yes, blow the druid horns as the wind blows across the back of thine enemies and shines thy nights as the moon sky is lit with the twinkling of the future being a yes. sweet humbug of goodness. Yes, and speaking of wind, uh, north of the great windy city, our friend Chad blows in uh, to shore here on his Stargate sailboat. Chad, how are you today, brother? Doing great, guys. Looking forward to another adventure in Connecticut, man. I'm looking forward to visiting Connecticut at some point, taking a tour. Because hearing last week's episode and digging in a little bit, man, seems like a really cool spot. So agreed. looking forward to tonight and seeing what's next. Agreed, agreed. And Tara and I have been uh, digging. I know you both have been digging up information as well. Tara found some really cool info on uh, Peter Pruden, who actually founded uh, the town that we're in. And he was an original member of the New Haven Colony. We talked a little bit about the New Haven Colony last week. But uh, one thing I want to talk about really quick, really briefly, I don't think I mentioned this on the show. And if I did, stop me. But I found a book called Weird America by Jim Brandon. Ha have I mentioned this already? Did you guys know? Okay. So mm -hmm. I probably told you about it off the air, though, Roman. So I, I think you've told me about this book, but you didn't actually pull up anything. Okay. Uh, so I'm curious. Maybe, Chad, you may be familiar with this book, Weird America. It has like a Native American like oh. holding like a snake on top of his head or something on the cover. And uh, it's, it's an older book that's sort of right up our alley with this show because it goes state by state and lists a bunch of uh, places that people uh, may or may not know about. So I go into Weird America. I go into the Connecticut section of the the book and I go and there's only four towns in the Connecticut section there's not much going on according to this author but one of those towns surprisingly was our hometown of Milford and I'm like what the heck Milford what's going on in Milford that I didn't know about and of course there's the Charles Island which Tara told me this week was uh, cursed by Chief Ansantaway right is that how I pronounce his name on Santaway? Yeah. And I've always found it curious that the Freemason Lodge, the only Freemason Lodge in town, is named after On Santaway. Uh, but On Santaway cursed Charles Island. And Charles Island is kind of an interesting 
little island uh, here in Milford. It's connected to the shore by a piece of land called a tombolo. Now, a tombolo is different from your typical sandbar because... Why are you getting into this right now? Get into this. You wanted to get into it? Yeah, I told you that. What are you talking about? Weird America and what's underground here? Yeah, I'm just that's I'm giving them a little teaser. You're gonna a little blow, juice. You're gonna. I'm not gonna take your your right, your right, your right. spotlight. Oh, you're trying to steal Tara's limelight. Oh, no, I see no. how it is. Captain no, Kid. no, I wasn't gonna bring up Captain Kid, but he's involved in this. That was my suspicion. I'm like, oh, they're gonna talk about Charles Island because it's a cursed island. All right, I'm not gonna say anything more about Charles Island. Um, but they weren't talking about Charles Island in this book surprisingly the one little section on milford mentioned that in the 70s they had built some sewers and as they were digging up these uh you know trenches for the sewers to go in they found some underground tunnels and i had never heard of this at all and curiously enough tara and i had just moved into the same neighborhood where these tunnels are allegedly under the ground and uh, they're you know, these massive 20 foot wide tunnels. And given that Milford is on the shore and it's also on a river, I'm kind of wondering like, what would this, how, you know, where would these tunnels fit in, you know, in an, a prior civilization long ago or something, or maybe they were some sort of aqueduct connected to the water. Or, I mean, who knows, but I just found it appropriate for this show uh, to share that little story. Although we haven't found anything else out about that tunnel, it's like, that's the magic. That's the fun of doing this, you know, is like, hmm. you never know when you're going to stumble upon that one, like lost piece of information about where you live or something that's connected to you. And I'm not talking about, you know, you Roman Chad, I'm talking about you, the listener, like keep your eyes open folks. And, uh, and these things will reveal themselves to you. Like, you know, I, it would have been very hard for me to find that story in the newspaper. Uh, but luckily, uh, this, author preserved that little tidbit in his book so one one of the many reasons why i like to collect books of this sort and given that we're in new england there's a bunch of authors who have written books like strange new england and strange massachusetts you know all these series of books and eh, it's not you know specific to new england but because of the history of witches and, you know, sort of the colonial times here, we have a sort of spookier reputation. So I just want to let people know um, we will cover that kind of stuff. But if we miss anything, that's the point of the email. Get in touch with us. Esoteric America. We had a few comments uh, in the last few videos and most of them were, were for Austin and the comments seem to suggest that maybe we had left things out, but that's the point of this show is to, uh, you know, get... sorry, sorry about it. Comments. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you need commenters. a job. All right. Cause I got plenty for you. All right. Sorry. All right. No, I am a real salty. <laughs> no, please. Thank you. I love that. I love that. And, uh, yeah, for all of you out there who want to comment, just send us an email and we'll read your uh, tips, advice, 
you know, research, whatever you're adding to the conversation, we'll, we'll address that uh, at the end of the show. So uh, with that in mind, remind me uh, towards the end to bring up some of the messages we have received from people. Oh, um, but let's get into this. What do you think? We, we, we have, uh, we have a, a, a lot of information to get into. So I'll be honest. I have one thing to talk about, you but I went first? deep on this one thing. <laughs> you go first. Um, I'll go first. Okay. Yes. Everyone listen up. Here's the deal. I'm caffeinated. I'm hyped. All right. I'm feeling good, but I, uh, yeah. I, I got sucked. But this thing is beautiful. Uh, listeners that are, that are enjoying this, this content, um, of Esteric America. I'm going to leave out so much of this character. I didn't even get into half of anything that PT Barnum has to talk about. This character is vast and I just got stuck on his family history, finding out that it was inevitable that he would be in politics and that he would be a star because his bloodline runs deep to the very first days of Connecticut history. Um, so we got a little, we got a little uh, presentation here or slides because you know if we're working with the great chad stimke you just got to have slides now wait it's just how it goes you made a presentation about pt barnum as well did you no but a, an a, a audience member did and that's what i was going to talk about at the end but look at this look oh, at how the stars shit. align nice. i was going to say we should have this gentleman on uh but yeah, maybe we ought to uh, we ought to get into it with you first, and then uh, see where his research differs. This is awesome! What a synchronicity! I mean, well, I love this character, and he. Is, I mean, I don't. I don't actually enjoy him. I think he's a rather pious piece of shit, um, and he's he's so contorty. He is so contorty. This man, he is contorted in many many ways. Um, <laughs> So this is one of his uh, most lavish quotes of P.T. Barnum. There's a soccer born every minute with his beautiful face. Thank you for that one. Bringing bring some just beautiful wisdom to the scene here, P.T. Barnum. Thanks, bud. Anyways, <laughs> um, here's the, uh, the autobiography written by himself, of course. The life of P.T. Barnum wouldn't need to be written by anybody else. At his death, the critics praised Barnum for the good works and called him an icon of American spirit and ingenuity. He asked the evening sun to print his obituary just prior to his death so that he might read it. On April 7th, 1891, Barnum asked about the box office receipts for the day. And a few hours later, he was dead. <laughs> That's the story of this man's death. Uh, and he, he loved his story so much and he loved his he loved his esoteric ideas that he would bring to the table with his multiple writings some of his writings are pretty pretty good but they're some of them are pretty symbolic and we'll get into some of that later but yeah he, he basically wanted to write his own obituary that's basically it um and so if he could stage his death being the man of show you bet your sweet ass that he would want to do that. He would want to pull the strings on that. So, you know, he had everything planned out uh, and his family shows that. His family is is um, very, very popular. 
Um, so, and one of, one of his books, uh, that I have pulled up and we can get into it later. I don't know if we'll get into it now. Cause, um, or during this presentation, where we go into it and search up words or something. Can I just uh, comment? The, yes. I already love the formatting of your presentation. The way you do you have this slide set up is like very appealing to the eye. Just a, just a note for people who want to be on the show in the future and they might want to create a presentation. This is this is exactly what we're looking for. It's very simple, focused. I love it. Oh, awesome. Uh, I use Canva. I have Canva Pro. Um, so it's a good good resource for anybody. Um, it does you it does take up a lot of like RAM on your computer so you can download it as a PDF and then present it that way is a lot easier than using the browser because it'll like fidget you out, especially if you're on StreamYard as well. Um, I'm also very caffeinated. I'm told that you guys out already. So I'm it talking is. really fast. So um, apologies. Um, anyways, <clears throat> there's just so many crazy stories about this man that, like I said, there's I'm not, I didn't even get into any, half of it. I didn't even have any pictures of the mansions that he's built or any of his museums on this slideshow. Mm. This is a very introductory slideshow on today, kind of the history um, and the early parts of his life. But his career as the self proclaimed Prince of Humbugs was launched at the age of 25 when a customer named Coley Bartram entered the grocery store. Barnum had started with his with John Moody. Bartram knew Phineas had a weakness for speculative in investments, and he was looking to sell a curiosity. Joyce Heth, an African-American woman alleged to be 161 years old, and former nurse to the founding father, George Washington, drew crowds of curious onlookers willing to pay for the chance for, to hear her speak and even sing. And Barnum jumped at the opportunity to market her performances. Can I, can I just point out, uh, PT stands for uh, Phineas T. Barnum. So that mm -hmm. name Phineas is, is the same as Barnum. But wow, look at that. He's, uh, he, he, he's basically like a record label <laughs> pimping out his talent. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And like, he started to, uh, started to like, like started to get these gigs and get these jobs because he would just take these offers like this. Mm. And then, then that's when all of this uh, entertainment really started to shape shift for him. And oh. he always had money. He was a prolific member of the Oddfellows Secret Society. And you see here uh, this famous photo of him standing in a lodge. Great work. PT, thank you. Thank I, I, you. I should have reserved my compliments <laughs> on your slide until the end. Um, so here's, awesome. the, here's the classic seal of um, the Odd Fellows. It's, uh, we command you to visit the sick, relieve the distressed, bury the dead, to bury the dead, and to educate the orphan. Now, any Tartarian researcher person would just like mud flood would just be like, oh, my God, at this. Um, because, you know, to bury the dead and to educate the orphan and, you know, you got the orphan trains there in this time in the period and then P.T. Barnum being like the anti, anti contraceptive, uh, politician that he was passed one of these major bills right before he passed away. Um, anyways, that's the, that's the odd fellows seal and logo. It's, it's just uh, hilarious. Like with all the symbolism, you have the serpent wrapping around the globe as the Orphic egg and the all seeing eye up top, potentially ISIS there. And then you have the anchor and all, all the classic seal symbolism. But I, I labeled this slide born to be a star. 
His family line stems from the Barnums and the Stars. There was a, the Star family. The, um, we have a list here of a bunch of early notable Barnums. The Barnum family goes very, very far back into the England, uh, the English royal houses. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit here. So the Barnum family line goes back to the beginning of Connecticut with Thomas Barnum in 1625. Not like they didn't found Connecticut by any means, but they were one of the early family members that were there. Do you know which part of Connecticut they they went to first? Hartford? Yes, I don't know, but I, I have it in some of these slides. Cool, cool. Um, it what's what's one of the major towns that starts with the letter P? <laughs> Is that or B P or B Plymouth? One of those. Yes, Plymouth. They came through Plymouth, Plymouth Massachusetts. I believe so. Bridgeport. Yeah, Bridgeport is where they they kind of where Barnum kind of settled in, but this would have been before Bridgeport was at a place in 1625. I'm just curious, like if they were part of the New Haven colony, the Connecticut colony, or one of the Massachusetts colonies when they immigrated from Europe. But so this going, seal you might is directly uh, correlated with Thomas Barnum. This is Thomas Barnum's seal. He was a part of the. Sigilium Republic of Connecticut. Um, So Connecticut colony. Yeah. So he was a part of the Connecticut colony there. Cool. And so he was the first Barnum in Connecticut in 1625, but he was the son of Francis Barnum and Francis Barnum uh, was very prolific. And here's a little bit about his life. It's actually really interesting. Um, Francis Barnum was the eldest son of Martin Barnum of London of Hollingborn. Kent and his second wife, Judith uh, Calthorpe, daughter of Sir Martin Calthorpe of London, was a nephew of Benedict Barnum. He was baptized on Hollingborn on October 20th, 1576. His father was sheriff in Kent in 1598. Barnum uh, matric- matriculated which means I think just got matriculated into a college matriculated, matriculated uh, from Trinity from Trinity College in Cambridge in 1592 and was admitted at Gray's Inn on the 8th of November in 1594. He was knighted in 1603 at the Whitehall Palace in James first accession shortly after his father in 1604. He was elected to the member of parliament for Grand Pound. In 1613, he inherited a Belknap Redston, the uh, the brother of his father's first wife, the estate of Barton Monchelsea. Bolton Monchelsea. He was elected uh, MP for Grand Pound in 1614 with his father-in-law, Samson Leonard, an antiquary of some eminence, and his father. And he was nominated as a member of the Academy of Literature, projected with the approval of court in 1617, but subsequently was abandoned. In 1621, Barnum was elected MP for Maidstone. He was elected MP for Maidstone again in 1626, 1629, when King Charles decided to rule without Parliament for 11 years. He was Colonel of the Aylesford Lath trained ban at the time of the first bishop's war in 1639. So basically he's very decorated. Okay. Um, and they had money and Francis Barnum, uh, according to Colquitt, uh, she wrote the book founders of early American families, immigrants from Europe, 1607 to 1657 Cleveland general court, the order of the founders of the Patriots of America, 1975, Ooh, let me move this. Um, Thomas Barnum, the son of Francis, arrived in Fairfield, 
Connecticut in 1655. Sorry, Fairfield. No worries. No worries. That's good to know, though, because Fairfield is a part of it's actually the easternmost part of the Gold Coast. Right after Fairfield is Bridgeport, oh. which is the largest city in Connecticut. It's probably also the um, most dangerous, uh, <laughs> considering the amount of crime there. It's also the most impoverished. So right at the end of the Gold Coast is where they dump their trash. Let's let's just say that. <laughs> Oh, you always you always have one of those, you know. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, that's where that's uh, where. Uh, actually, Bridgeport in uh, P.T. Barnum's day was like you know major hub of industry. So it's actually like you know just a part of the Rust Belt kind of effect. One of the one of the things I wanted to dig into more because I I love the history of uh, when I say I love things, it means I'm really interested about them. Not necessarily that I'm like infatuated by them by any means, but mm. the the people that ran the railways because <laughs> i was gonna say it's gonna sound kind of bad but if i if i say i love like the history of railways um it's i like the i like looking at it and seeing who was a part of it because if you start to look at the families that were running these different uh railways that's how i found out about henry flagler and did that whole big huge uh florida deep dive you start to see who these real money movers are well pt barnum had a big play in the new york to new haven railway rail line that was happening and he had insider business information he wrote about it all in his autobiography he's got multiple chapters on it That's so I, I didn't enter any of those slides into here but just know that he played a big part in that yeah that's the metro north that's a big uh that's a big deal. You know, that's how all the people in New York City live in Connecticut is they, they just take the train in, you know, that that created that whole bedroom community of wealthy neighborhoods uh, along that train line. So, yeah, definitely worth mentioning. I should also say that P.T. Barnum's like old building that used to be it's like kind of like an old museum. I don't know if it's still open, but you can see it from the highway. And I used to drive by it every week when I was delivering uh, bread. And it was around the same time that I started learning about Tartaria, like four or five years ago. And I was like, whoa, that's got to be oh, a Tartarian perfect. building just by the way it looked. And then sure enough, <laughs> it happened to be P.T. Barnum's old uh, hangout, you know, built by him. Was it one of his mansions? No, that one burned down. The Iranistan? Yeah. Iranistan. I'm glad you have that because, yeah, that's huge that's... Moorish. Uh, he loved he loved Moorish architecture. Mm. Uh, he had multi. It's funny how many of his buildings have burnt down. How many of these buildings that he's had that have actually burnt down? It's been um, two of his famous museums in New York burnt down. We're just within a few years of being well, think built. Think about it. Think um, about I'm it. I'm pretty like, sure. Think maybe about, one of his mansions. Yeah, but think about it like this. I mean, you know, the whole deal with the World's Fair uh, burning down. You know, one theory is that they did it for the insurance. Like, I, I think that was a big thing in that mm. time. Is like you just kind of like rolled over your your investments in property that way instead of like losing mm -hmm. money on a property, you just destroy it and claim the insurance. You also have to remember Connecticut's kind of like the early insurance broker of the colonies. Uh, all of the uh, ships that were being sailed out of Connecticut and Massachusetts, you know, they had to be insured by different insurance companies. It's kind of like uh, the, the whole insurance industry 
is a maritime industry by origin. Uh, but you know, obviously in, in PT Barnum's mm-hmm. time, they were fully scamming the system and using it, uh, you know, but keep going. We're, we're, yeah. get, we're tangenting. Sorry. No, but yeah, it's, it, that's actually really important because like knowing who these big players are in the beginning, you know, it's just, it's just like looking at the beast of Jekyll Island and like the beginning of the banking co- conglomerates, you know, like these early parts of why we are so fucked, basically. I mean, P.T. Barnum, I, I mean, inevitably played a role in that, you know, I mean, anybody who has Hugh Jackman portraying you in this movie about fantasizing your life and making you some like... They should have had somebody uh, uh, more along the lines of uh, of uh, Jonah Hill's twin that had been, you know, left in the closet for like hadn't seen sunlight for 30 <laughs> years to play P.T. Barnum. Not a Hugh Jackman in The Greatest Showman. You know what I mean? Like this guy was a shysty son of a bee. Um, anyways, I'm just saying Hugh Jackman's a major babe. You know what I mean? Um, but whatever. I digress. So uh, here we are. Um, yeah, I think it's important to bring up like the early insurance claims because basically insurance birthed from the, like the conglomerate, it's like one of the arms of the conglomerate of the banking system. It's, it makes sense in theory why you would need insurance, why you might have it, but it is so much more than a, uh, necessity. Now, now we have to have these medium things. It should be a choice. To, to have insurance, but they make us have insurance, which is the scam, which is what these people do. Anyways, I digress. Like I said, I'm caffeinated. Sorry, everybody. You have to deal with me just for a little bit longer. Um, I wanted to get into his parents specifically. His father's name is Philo, which is, I'm assuming, short for philosophy. I'm not sure uh, no. what, what other name <laughs> yeah. Philo, might, Philo might be short for. <laughs> Philo, though? <laughs> no, just that's just a name. That was just a name in the back in the day. Well, you know, he's he. So he's Philo, and then uh, PT is Phineas, and then uh, his father was Euphraim Barnum. Ephraim. And Euphraim has a yeah. Euphraim has a uh, which means uh, to plant many seeds, or to have Ephraim means <laughs> to have bear bear much fruit. Right. And I'm just so, I'm just trying to, you know, make it clear for the listening audience. I'm not trying to correct you, Roman. I just if the listening I'm not audience offended. wants it's to all go good. And, and try to spell any of this out on in their own searching, it helps to pronounce it correctly. That's all. Yeah, E frame. It's like E P H R A I M Barnum Jr. Well let them figure and, uh, some of it out. What what I thought was kind of interesting was that there was these two stars that are seemingly not related. So the wife of of Euphraim uh, Barnum was Rachel Starr. Mm. And Rachel Starr was the daughter of John Starr, who was a very credited uh, uh, guy, sergeant. He was a very decorated sergeant, Cop- uh, Captain John Starr. Mm. And so here's Euphraim, and here's Euphraim is the grandfather. And she was married to a star, but then she doesn't have any actual family other than uh, um, this lady here. Rachel Starr was the daughter of John Starr, but Hittabil, how do you say that? Pronounce that one for me. Maytabul. Like May, like the name Maytabul Barnum. Maytabul Barnum. 
Matable. Okay, so Matable Barnum, who was formerly known as Star, I tried to look up her family, and she is the daughter of unknown and the you know the mother of no no. She has no no siblings, no family, but she was born in 1712. Mm. And so I thought that was interesting because his son also married a star. Mm. He um Philo married uh Rachel and then but his grandfather married a star, but where did the star family come from? Because John Starr was born in 1711, the same time that Matabel was born in 1712. So it's like, are they brother and sister? And so what I, what I kind of was alluding to in my mind was that they were trying to conceptually keep like a bloodline going because it seems that the Barnums are very, very passionate about their family and their lineage from their royal ties over in England to start this, you know, and be part of this new, you know, Connecticut movement. And then you have these very prominent families coming together, like the Barnums and the stars. Mm. And so, you know, well, digging it's also, in. I mean, it's also fair to assume that back in those days, uh, marrying your cousins and so on wouldn't have been, you know, carried with the same uh, social sort of stigma that it has now. True. So True. you got to imagine like in these colonies, uh, there weren't probably a lot of women to choose from. And, and maybe because the family had that relationship going back, there would have just naturally been a number of women with that last name and a number of men with that last name just sort of around in the community. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily something that has to be like, uh, it's not so unusual that it has to be like, you know, plotted that way. I mean, it, it could yeah. be, it could be, but, but I just... military. They're in the military. Well, so was everybody that's, back then. I mean, at that time, I, I mean, you were yeah, part of a militia That's true. To that's some true. Extent. Yeah, you're either doing a super trade or you're a part of part of the army of sorts because they have the, the concept the, of keeping the, the family in, in the family is a thing that yeah yeah, was, yeah. Was very common back in the day so they would specifically do that well, especially if they were royal they needed to keep it in the family bloodline that's yeah. a part of being the royal blood like in a yeah. few well i do i do want to warn people uh about those flat those emblems uh that you have on the left there i don't know how legit that is but there is a website that is like it'll be like in the top three when you search any european name genealogy and it's mm -hmm. it's the most bogus genealogy site ever and they they <laughs> you can immediately recognize them because they all use the same sort of like emblems mm -hmm. and i looked it up for my own genealogy and it's all wrong information that's not to say every single one is wrong but you just gotta yeah. be careful uh there's a lot out there dude well, and also you have to some of double these, and triple check different sites also I, some I, of I mean these, i had to at least some of these last names you know they they become anglicized and then americanized in the colonies and those people have no connection to possibly people of the same name in mm -hmm. europe that you know their name had been that way initially and it hadn't been anglicized but once that first one had been anglicized now they're both the same last name you understand where the yeah i've looked at a lot yeah. of itineraries and rosters of like um ellis island and stuff like that when you go to look up whose names was coming off the boats right and mm. there's a lot of people with the same name like these <laughs> yeah. families are fucking big like yeah. it's not like now 
it's not like now at all when you know you have like a couple cousins it's like just even look immediate family right yeah i mean there's, even even just a couple generations ago i mean my grandparents both had up to seven to eight siblings so it's like you know mm -hmm. it's just something that's changed over time but okay interesting we got some odd connections here with the star and the barnum family i like where you're going with this yeah you know it was just I, like i said i i get really into details like i love getting into like super finite details and so i'll just get lost looking into the like like i said like i'm almost out of slides and uh, i don't really get too far into the, some of the crazy cool shit that he was into but something else is that the stars were so part uh such a good part of military they were so high in the military uh respect that they basically were secret spies and so one of the more famous more recent john stars of history because we have a lot of john stars the captain john sergeant john family bloodline goes very far back i mean they're all named john star if you're in the star family and you're a john you're a boy you're in the army your name is fucking john right and that's going to get you a good spot so john renshaw star has very notable secret missions so much so that it's even on wikipedia they're telling me secret um special operations executive missions that he was on and i thought it'd be fun just to read one really quick star parachuted blind without being met on the ground near valence one night on the 27th and 28th of august in 1942. his job was to evaluate the food requirements for the c-a-r-t-e network that was a network uh organization that was early an early illusory attempt at organizing a french resistance to the nazis a resistance group that claimed uh, that claim with SOEU support, it could raise an army of 300,000 men to resist the German occupant occupation of France. Star made his way from Valence to a villa in Cannes or Cannes. Sorry. Cannes. <laughs> Jesus. I know. I'm so sorry. Uh, in Cannes, where he met an SOE agent, Peter Churchill, and CART leader, Andre Girard. Starr learned from Churchill in his own experiences that CART was a large fantasy of Girard's. He returned to England in November, oddly enough, as he was boarding a small boat to clip, slip out of France. He encountered his older brother, George, who was arriving in France mm. as an SOE agent. See, but this is this is, this is where I'm very confused we don't have to spend too much time on this right <laughs> all right we're out of here no 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 but anyways <laughs> what large military it's it just it just they're all connecticutians and they're connecticuties oh, <laughs> and uh <laughs> oh, look at anyways this. no no i digress <clears throat> i digress so like i said I love details. old f frame means grizz is an old way to describe a grizzly bear i had never seen this before yeah, man. So I started getting into some of not just P.T. Barnum. I started getting into his family. I was like, I need to find out who his family is. Um, and that'll tell us who P.T. Barnum could be. Right. <clears throat> so. Uh, so, like I said, he was a member of the Oddfellow Society. So um, I went to the Oddfellow symbol symbology book and I pulled up as many bears references as I could. Um, 
and to see see what types of symbology would be there. So a mark of distinction, a sign or a token by which a person is distinguished in a particular employment or place or designating as relation to other persons or particular occupation. It is synonymous with uh, cog cognizance in her heraldry. The family followers or retainers of the Dukes of York wear a red rose as a badge. Those Dukes of Lancaster wore a right rose, while lions, bears, and crescents, and full moons, birds, and beasts, and innumerable other objects were worn by others, showing their connection to some particular family. Even the American Indians have their badges called by them. However, totems, each tribe and family was known by its totem, which usually was representation of some animal, such as the bear, wolf, turtle, deer, and so on. So P.T. Barnum wrote a number of books and he wrote a number of literature works. And in one of them, he wrote this famous story that he named this bear in the story you frame. And there was this huge, huge three-toed bear that was so famous that it was known across the country, this grizzly bear that was, uh, that was in Utah. And P.T. Barnum wrote it in his, in his book. So it's kind of a little bit of a stretch that, you know, maybe he coined this term a frame uh, and named this, this bear, or it could be some like, uh, cryptic type of writing. And I have that book in PDF as well. And I didn't get to dig too much deeper into it, but I thought it was interesting. One of the many esoteric works and literature pieces of PT Barnum. Boom. Uh, and then, uh, John Grizzly Adams, the bear hunter who was actually related to John Adams in the family line, um, was one of PT Barnum's friends and got famous through PT Barnum's circuses. So he was like kind of one of these showcasey guys. Um, but likely that he, John Adams, John Grizzly Adams, was a part of the secret society as well. And inside the workings and the like running some sort of entertainment scam with P.T. Barnum, <clears throat> symbolizing the bear as a part of like the family lineage. Mm. Um, and then is that, oh, is that my last slide? It is. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's it, man. Hey, I'm sorry, guys. Like I said, I wish I don't be sorry. I had gotten there. No, no, no. Yeah, don't be awesome, sorry. Man. Yeah, that'd be great. I think this is a good primer too, considering uh, the person who, and I'm sorry, I forget their name. I will give him a shout out at the end when I pull up the notes here. But uh, yeah, this gentleman or lady who sent me an email, I think it's a gentleman. Uh, they put together at least 40 slides about P.T. Barnum. So if they are wow. uh, willing, we'll have them on the show, one of these episodes to get into that. Um, or maybe if they're they're a little shy, we'll, we'll just show their presentation for them. It's totally up to them. But uh, very cool, Roman. I think P.T. Barnum mm -hmm. is a man of uh, mystery. As you said, uh, you kind of alluded mm -hmm. to when he wrote his own you know, autobiography. Anybody who writes an autobiography is sus. They have something to hide. They're trying <laughs> to get the story out ahead of anyone else. And it's like, you know, if, you were, if you're so important, someone will write you a biography. You don't need to write your own, you know. I mean, think about all the people who have written autobiographies. Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I have a I have a third edition of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Everybody has a copy of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Damn it. It's like 
it's like the most common book in the you know east of the Mississippi. But anyways, uh, oh for real? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm I'm surprised you have one out there. But yeah, for sure, I'm sure the the Benjamin Franklin books are all over the place. Yeah. Um. It would be interesting to look at, like, I was just thinking about the the bear symbolism and, like, the bear clan and what that meant to the Native Americans and and maybe why why P.T. Barnum chose to, to use the bear as his kind of, uh, yeah. you know, symbol to Well, you. I'm sure he uh, had, I'm sure he had yeah. bears considering he, uh, considering he did that circus, you know. And like, isn't the bear on the California flag? Yeah. Yes. It's it yeah. all about I entertainment. Mean, bear. Bear is. Um, Good point. <laughs> yeah. Bear. Bears are very, very, very powerful spirit animals. I know that for sure. Well, even the, so, the teddy bear was invented uh, by Theodore Roosevelt, who loved bears. But uh, yeah, very oh. interesting. We got a bunch of loose ends that are going to be tied up, uh, and I just want to take a brief moment to give a shout out to my friend Garrett he makes the hit kit and since we're talking I wouldn't do a plug like this unless you know we were talking about New Haven because check this out he sent me this really cool um, well it's a device I don't know any other way to put it but what it does is it holds whatever you plan on smoking right there along with your lighter and he was kind enough to send me one with the New Haven seal on it. So that is the New Haven Colony seal Ooh, nice. right there. And I've nice. always found it fascinating uh, that this seal uh, looks the way it looks, specifically because of the boat. And I think we talked about this last episode, but there was a phantom ship that appeared over the harbor in New Haven. Uh during the early days of the colony. And it's one of the reasons why New Haven really wasn't a successful colony and eventually got absorbed by Connecticut. It's because they sent their first boat out, the Lamberton, uh, and it never returned. And a few weeks later, they saw this great apparition in the sky. Uh, and there are many people at that time who saw flying Dutchman. But uh, funny enough, I was just on a, a little trip this weekend with past guest on this show, uh, Recluse, Steven Snyder, uh, who joined us to talk about Wisconsin. Him and I went down to Pennsylvania along with uh, Phil and Henry. Shout out to them. Michael Wan also joined in uh, for a brief moment uh, as we hey, toured dude. Rose Valley. But it was very uh, synchronistic because I read about that Rose Valley uh, section in the same book I mentioned earlier and said to Stephen, like, hey, maybe we should go here. I think we were initially planning on going to... Uh, Arden, or I don't remember exactly the specifics, but we will be talking about that on a future podcast. And I don't know why I just went into that other than to point out the connection between the town of Lamberton in Pennsylvania or New Jersey and uh, the name of the ship. But that's where I was. I went to Lamberton. I grew up in Rose Valley, remember? I told you that, too. Yes, that was another yes, synchronicity. Yes, yes, yes. And wow. Chad, actually, remember I sent you guys the message in the Telegram. I said, oh, check it out. I'm going here. Mm -hmm. And you sent me the Wikipedia of the Thunderbird Lodge. And that's exactly, I didn't know this, 
but until I got there, but that's exactly where we were going to do our tour. So it was nice. kind of funny. I sent you that picture nice. from inside of the, mm-hmm. the inside. Of, yeah, I was like, Hmm, maybe he'll pick this one up <laughs> if I send it in yep. from inside. But yeah, that was a, a really interesting trip. Enough about that. We'll have to talk about that on a future episode when we get into Pennsylvania, uh, which we will, but, um, Chad, you have some really fascinating research that connects with what I talked about in our last episode. For folks who haven't tuned into that yet, maybe go back and check it out. Uh, Or if you have listened to it, just to brush you up on what I'm talking about, uh, we mentioned the sleeping giant in our last episode. And Chad went and found some uh, broader connections to this sleeping giant. Uh, and I'm excited to get into it. Is there more than, than just that? What, what do we have in store next, Chad? Uh, yeah, well, you sent me down a rabbit hole with the sleeping giant and the Hamanescent line. And the Hamanescent line runs through Connecticut, as you know, relatively close to your sleeping giant. And where it hits upper michigan it hits directly into another sleeping giant uh rock outcropping that for all intents purposes looks just like the one in new haven i mean almost identical so i started tracing the haminescent line from giant to giant to see what kind of cultural events and if there was any significance so that's what i'm going to show you today is a couple of things i found i think are pretty synchronistic and significant so it. let me get to my screen here for you guys. I love it. This is this connects. Uh, yeah, the to, sleeping giant sent me down a rabbit hole. Yeah, this connects to what uh, I hope to bring up. Yeah, Hobomoko. The spirit Hobomoko. This is this is kind of where I was hoping to go mm-hmm. too. So perfect. Let's get into it. The Hamanasset line yeah. stretches from Montauk up to uh, what is that? The Isle Royal, they call it that island up there, uh, Chad. In the yep, the, that is Isle Royal. Isle Royal is the home to the purest copper out- outcroppings in the world, and over a half billion pounds of copper were mined there up to 8,000 years ago and for all intents purpose that copper has vanished but we'll get into that in a little bit more in a minute the Hamanescent line I'm excited to talk about this with you guys Mark because hardly anybody knows about this Hamanescent line and when I did my first interview with you Mark you were one of the few people who actually knew about it so this is exciting for me uh, for people who don't know about it, the Hamanescent Line, like Mark said, it starts what well, goes through Montauk, New York, cuts through Connecticut, back through New York, across Michigan, and up into Canada. And the Hamanescent Line itself, it actually runs at a northwest angle, and it marks the winter solstice sunrise, as well as the summer solstice sunset. And along this line, you will find ancient carns, ancient stone walls, ancient burial sites, you know, all these super significant and cultural places. Now, in Connecticut, where Mark and Tara are from, you find all these ancient stone walls and carns and rock piles. And, you know, as Mark and Tara surely can tell you, the official archaeological explanation is the settlers moved these rocks as they, you know, migrated across the country and 
supposedly in the 1600s, the first generation, they moved these rocks around so they could farm. The second generation, they start putting them in lines and making walls to kind of fence off their farms. Then eventually, modern farming came in and they left. So you'll find supposedly rocks and rows in the middle of the trees. But that's the conventional explanation. There's definitely other possibilities. Now, here's a LiDAR image, just so you can kind of see how extensive some of these walls are when you peel away the wooded areas. And it's not just Connecticut. There's walls like these through a lot of the New England states. Mm. And there's been studies done where Native Americans may have built a lot of these walls. And a lot of these walls, you know, are aligned to the winter and summer solstice and different astrological events. And you'll find cellars like these and you know according to archaeologists they say these are root cellars which there may be some root cellars but many times these so-called root cellars are aligned to astrological events so all along this hamanescent line from new york leading northwest along this summer solstice and winter solstice sunrise line you'll find these monuments you get to go through Connecticut, then you get go through New York. This is the Devil's Tombstone. This is by up uh, by Woodstock and the Catskill Mountains. You'll find these marker stones right along this line for hundreds and hundreds of miles. But the reason I thought this was interesting is because running through Connecticut, it runs relatively close to the Sleeping Giant. Mark and Terry wow. were talking about. Mm. It doesn't run another directly Mark, over Mount it, Carmel. but you know, these are another Mount Carmel. Yeah, but wow. this, to me, these are energy lines. So if you can stand on the top of Sleeping Giant, look down and see where this imaginary line was, I think we're close enough. Mm. So I'm going to start, start here Montauk, New York. And we'll get into that in a minute. But from Montauk, it runs right past the Sleeping Giant at this northwest angle all the way across New York. Then when it gets up to Michigan, this is what I like to point out because it runs right across the tip of this is called the Keweenaw Peninsula. And it hits this little island. It's called the Manitou Island. And it hits Isle Royal, the purest copper in the world, ancient copper mines all over this island. And there's also a big outcropping called the Sleeping Giant. And it's absolutely identical to the sleeping giant that it passes in Connecticut. It's right next to so this where the underwater... line ends up is wow. yep. The right next to the underwater anomaly I discussed in another episode. Yeah. Right next to the world's purest copper source. It's next to this runs into the sleeping giant. And it runs into this is Thunder Bay, Ontario. This is the home of the Thunderbird in native lore. Wow. So we have, once again, this connection to the Giants and the Thunderbirds. We've had several wow. episodes, these connections to the Giants mm-hmm. and the Thunderbirds, you know. So in Thunder Bay, I just want to point out, Thunder Bay, Ontario, here's their seal. We were looking at different coat of arms. You can actually see on the hmm. bottom left here, this giant, he's, he's standing on the sleeping giant. But they turned the giant into a French guy in this, you know, in this depiction. <laughs> and Thunder Bay, it just happens to be the gateway to the west. Oh, God. This is 
Ontario is equivalent to St. Louis. This is their gateway to the West. So I thought it was kind of interesting, too, if you go up to the top of the seal, Mark. Look up here on top of the, the stone up here. You got a stone beaver. Yeah. We talked mm. about stone beaver last wow. episode. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you, you know, just a little, little synchronicity. Yeah. So we have this line that follows the solstices from sleeping giant to sleeping giant across, you know, several states, which is a huge synchronicity. So I just want to show you the similarities between the sleeping giant Connecticut, which is absolutely beautiful, and the sleeping giant in Michigan. And for all intents and purposes, they're super similar, you know. And you got this line connecting the two. So I was curious. We got giant to giant. Are there any legends or discoveries of giants? Mm. Go ahead, Tara. I'm sorry. Well, I just, I just wonder what could this be? What could the two, maybe like Keton and Keton and I don't know. Yeah, we say Hobomoko. We heard heard that legend. Uh, The legend here is the character's name was a Native American name, Nana Bojo. Oh. And Nana Bojo, this, this sleeping giant here was home to the purest silver mine known to the Native Americans. And Nanobojo told one of the Native Americans how to find a silver mine, but warned him if you ever divulge the whereabouts of the silver mine to the white man, you know, Nanobojo will be frozen in time. And at some point, a white, white man supposedly followed a Native American into the silver mine, and Ugh. the Native American not knowing it, but he found the location, and this is supposed to be Nano Bojo frozen in time due to the white man finding the silver mine. Wow. But this is a ancient silver mine also. We talked about the copper mining. This is pure silver here, too. So super interesting mineral contents in this geology. Mm. Whoa. That is that is that's mind melding having oof okay i'm done sorry that's wow. awesome chad you're great i love you no go for it man so we'll we'll start back in new haven and giant connections and there actually actually were giant bones discovered at the southern part of this line in new haven connecticut i'm just gonna read a little sample right here uh, a whopping eight-foot skeleton was excavated from New Haven, Connecticut. Several skeletons were laid out onto charcoal, then covered in charcoal before being covered by a mound. The burial ground was located next to the house of Daniel Buckingham and was uncovered when digging the cellar of the house. This burial ground lie inside the English settlement at Indian Point, which lies at the fork of the East River and Sound River. History of the Colony of New Haven before and after the Union with Connecticut. This was 1838. Another another example from New Haven. Skeletons of a Stone Age man are dug up in Connecticut. Mm. Prehistoric inhabitants of the Nutmeg State were flatheads of great strength and had huge teeth. <laughs> so they, they kind of you know skirted around it, but they're describing a giant. <laughs> now moving up to eight to the 1800s in, in New Haven once again, or Norwalk, I'm sorry, but in the New York Times from May 13th, 1888, the grave of a giantess. 
in Norwalk, Connecticut, on May 12th, there's a grave in Pine Island Cemetery that's no less than 10 feet long. It's that of Miss Mary Titism, a widow who was laid to rest there in February. A little over 119 years ago, in the 19th year of her age, tradition has it that Miss Titism was a giantess, which fully explains the enormous length of her grave. It is situated in a remote corner of the large burying ground, and its existence had been almost forgotten. A few days ago, it was discovered by some city people visiting there. So, you know, this could, this giantess, she may just have some leftover genes, you know, from the ancients. I'm not sure, but it's interesting enough that they're finding 10-foot graves still in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hartford, Connecticut, which is Hartford's just, just a little north of the line, a little north of the Hammonesset line. A farmer's uncovered relics of an old city in Hartford, Connecticut, January 31st. Numerous relics of a destroyed Indian village have been found in the farm of John Gray near Scheider, this county. An entire skeleton of an Indian giant has been dug up, together with many other human bones, curious copper and stone implements, and crude ornaments. Hmm. The thigh bone of the giant skeleton is twice as large as that of an ordinary man. The relics were found in a gravel pit, a depth of 20 feet. People in a large number are flocking to the scene of the discovery. Farmer Gray believes a vast structure of gold will be found, and he is guarding his property. <laughs> so they're finding these giants all over Connecticut, you know, relatively close to this line, the line from giant to giant. So and, and the lore of them protecting the country, treasure just too, right? Of protecting treasure, and I think more importantly, almost every one of these they'll have copper implements. And we're talking copper about a line silver. leading to the purest source of copper in the world. Mm. So yeah. what, one more example, Toronto Giants. And the line don't hit Toronto, but it goes just just north of Toronto. But this is a great report. On Wednesday, Reverend Nathaniel Wardle, Messrs. Orrin Wardle, Toronto, and Daniel Fredenberg were digging on the farm of the later gentleman, which is on the banks of the Grand River in the township of Cayuga. When they got to five or six feet below the surface of a strange sight met them, piled in layers upon top of the other, some 200 skeletons of human beings nearly perfect around the neck of each one, a string mm. of beads. They were oh. also depos deposited in this pit, a number of axes and skinners made of stone. And the jaws of several of the skeletons were large stone pipes of which Mr. Waldo took to him Toronto day or two after his Galgalta was unearthed. These skeletons are those of men of gigantic stature, some of them measuring nine feet, very few of them being less than seven feet. Some of the thigh bones were found to be at least half a foot longer than those at present known of the skulls being examined completely covered the head of an ordinary person. These skeletons are supposed to belong to a race of people of anterior to the Indians. The pit and its ghastly occupants are now open to the view of anyone who may wish to make a visit there. This Toronto, Canada, West Coast Times, issue 1924, November 29th, 1871. So just making the point that from sleeping wow. giant to sleeping giant along this sunset, sunrise line, there are actually giant reports everywhere and I, I think to me one of the most important parts are these giants being found with copper implements points to the fact that 
it may have had something to do with this line pointing to the copper. Now, one last thing about the Hammond-Nessent line I'd like to point out is if you extend it, because it doesn't necessarily start in Montauk, New York. If you extend it eastwards, it ends up in a place called the, called the Sargasso Sea, the sea without borders. And until today, I put this in here today, I didn't really know about the Sargasso Sea. I was, it was on Ancient Aliens today, so they just happened to be on in the background. <laughs> they were talking about vanished people. And I was in the other room, and they were talking about vanished people just outside of New England states, the Sargasso Sea. So I sat down started watching it. And, well, the Sargasso Sea, the Sea Without Borders, is they call it that because the four – Oh, Atlantic Ocean currents make up the borders. The Gulf Stream makes up the borders of this ocean. Huh. And the Sargasso Seas in the middle of this Gulf Stream is very, very blue and very calm. And it rotates and it's very shallow. And it's right outside the Bermuda Triangle. And ships are known to go missing the people on the ships are known to go missing i guess a little background on the sargasso sea i should mention is sargasso is a kind of seaweed and that's it's mm -hmm. the only kind of seaweed anywhere in the world that's grown in this one area and this area is so calm that sailing ships you know now we have motors but back in the day sailing ships would get caught in the sea and there's no wind so they they would get stranded in this sea and when people would end up finding these vessels, the vessels would be in fine condition, but the people many times will be missing. Huh. And that's kind of part of the story of the Sargassa Sea. And here in this depiction, you can see the different currents and how in the middle of these currents, it just leaves basically a, a dead spot. And because Is of that there, dead uh, spot, any... the seaweed's allowed to grow. Is there any uh, geological oh, constituents found there, like uh, tectonic plate, uh, like discrepancies, or like volcanic activity, or anything? Or what? Because you said it's a little bit more shallow. What's on? Do you know what's under there? Hmm. Uh, all I, all I, like I said, I just learned about it today. All I really know is it's super shallow and super calm, allowing for this seaweed to grow. Well, uh, some of the first people that's documented to encounter it was uh christopher columbus supposedly when he <laughs> ran into it he thought the seaweed at first was land the seaweed seaweed was so thick and then he you know eventually got through it but i think and roman, it gives it a beautiful color i think geologically yeah, roman that would be like uh, a newer area right because if we're gonna take the plate tectonic theory as fact then like what is now the american east coast uh was a part of europe and africa and geologically there are different like layers that we remember we were talking about the avalonia plate and and that mm -hmm. last week so i wonder maybe in the ocean if there are sort of like sort of some explanation for you know what happens when the landmass moves apart like something comes up from below volcano activity i mean there's certainly an explanation but i think this part what's really fascinating about the sargasso sea is it's connect it's sort of like 
in this area where there's no islands in between this sort of like circle of very tiny, small islands. And if we're, you know, going to take that Mm -hmm. Atlantis theory, uh, I've seen some maps where this area that the Sargasso Sea is was once like a a landmass, maybe not a a big one, but this kind Mm -hmm. of like island uh, chain landmass where it was just one kind of large island with many, many islands sort of chaining out towards what's now like, you know, the North European Atlantic Ocean area down to the Caribbean and all of these islands like the Bermuda and what's in the Caribbean and the Azores, these were all sort of remnants of that that have kind of moved apart over time. So maybe if Atlantis destroyed itself, the Sargasso Sea is some kind of like void. And that's why there's also, you know, people going missing there or, you know, the Bermuda Triangle and all that. This is really fascinating, Chad. Thank you for for connecting the dots, brother. And if something goes missing, then maybe things are coming out too, and they're being connected to like the the Hammond Asset line and the, Mm. you know, the the way like bones Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and minerals were used by the the ancients. What about really open portals? Oh, I was gonna say, what about the Phantom ships? Maybe the Phantom ships. Flow fly along this ley line, this Hammond asset line. <laughs> I mean, it's where they go yeah. missing. Yeah. All, all that in and out uh, yeah. of portals. But it'd be, it'd probably be, uh, like good to know what copper like does, like what that meaning is. You know, right? You mean well? It, like I think a lot of it has to do with because, uh, like, um, like dowsers, when people would yeah. douse minerals and uh, water wells, is like it's a magnetic anomaly. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> if there's all these things that are aligning to like a special type of electromagnetic radiation that's coming out of it, that the Earth is creating minerals due to what electromagnetic frequency that it has that's how the pressure and the energy that's there that's what creates those different constituents so i think and prop i mean speculatively but we could also look at that map it might just be like super strong magnetic energy too you know that, that like they're drawn to in the and the minerals like the silver mine the copper mine and things like that due to the the magnetics of the earth and both yeah like so there's these strong yeah. magnetic forces at play and 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 it what and it creates the like the pressure creates like the the radiation or whatever and then the like the copper pops out of it or something is that what you're getting at or uh when they say when i've read about electromagnetic radiation it's not necessarily like you know, it's it's just like a re, a, a, a term terminology for like reading of it, like an amount, like this, the the energy it's coming off. It's like radiation, that. but not necessarily like it's radiating you and making you <clears throat> sick. Um, like that map. Though I know that different mag. Hmm? Is it like the map you showed the us? The map. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, that Mr. Data USGS. Absolutely. You're, you're saying but there's like, an there's a energy detector to detect the signature of copper. It doesn't necessarily mean that copper is generating this massive field. It's just that it's a specialized device. No, but it might be a copper. byproduct of the field itself. The minerals could be the byproduct that the energy is coming from yeah. the earth. Yeah, like, because you know, I, I would think that's how it kind of works. Like emanation, like it's the, emanating a frequency that allows the mineral base, you know, proto mineral to, to form, form as copper rather than something mm -hmm. else. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cause it, you know, just like when you're cooking something, you need a certain amount specific type of pressure and time and you know, that, that amount of energy it takes to heat that oven and things. So some places are more hot spots than others. So I think that's, that's a big part of like navigation back in the day, you know, and using uh, the, the early on compasses and dowsers and the importance of navigation and putting these different markers of these things. Like this sounds like the sleeping giants could have been potential, uh, you know, could, as opposed to like literal giants that are thus molded into stone, but like a marker for these very important minds, because, you know, we can consider these these tribes of uh awesome amazing beautiful people to be primitive and they what would they, what would primitive people need to do with a silver mine and a copper mine we should take it away from them Fu like the story of them following the guy to the silver it's so classic iconic oh he, oh, he followed him sneakily followed him and then took it over basically and started making money off of it the next day like um anyways i, I digress please continue with your awesome presentation classic. sir <laughs> classic Classic. Uh, yeah, I just had a, a couple uh, examples of the, the disappearances in the Sargasso Sea here. Uh, the French ship, the Rosalie, was in 1840. It was a French merchant ship. It uh, says it sailed through the waters of the Sargasso, and on the next day it vanished without leaving any trace of it. It was later found with all sails set and no crew members on it. And the couple accounts I read, that's kind of the common scenario is these ships will go missing. And then when they find them, the crew's gone. So another another one, the American schooner, the Ellen Austin. Austin. In 1881, an American schooner, the Ellen Austin, found another ship traveling at good speed, but no crew members aboard. So the captain sent his crew to the ship. But the ship disappeared. It was found after a couple of days, but his crew was also gone. The Canamaro 5, a pleasure yacht, was found adrift in the Sargasso Sea, 1955. It usually stated in the stories that the crew vanished while the yacht was survived, being at sea through three separate hurricanes. So this ship sailed through three hurricanes without a crew, supposedly. So just, you know, strange happenings in the Sargasso Sea. So what I'd like to point out is something that Peter Shampoo said to us. And he, he mentioned that these energy lines are something akin or could be metaphorically something akin to vines or plant stems. And we have these blooms of cultural events and cultural significance along them. So in this case, if we look at it like that, we have the Hamanescent line or vine, and it's rooted literally in water in the Sargasso Sea and leads across the country, you know, blooming out these cultural significant events all the way up to Thunder Bay, 
you know, Ontario, the home of the sleeping giants. I'm just going to point out a few of the things we looked at, starting in the Sargasso Sea where this is rooted. We have vanished people, planes, and ships. Then we didn't really talk about this. I'll leave this up to the imagination. But what is Montauk doing right in the middle of this line with all their antennas mm -hmm. and, you know, all this stuff that surrounds Montauk? What are they doing situated right pretty much smack dab in the middle of this line? Then you got the sleeping giants, you got the carns, the dolmens, the stone walls, the giant discoveries, ancient cultures following this line, another sleeping giant, copper mines, silver mines, home to the Thunderbird, and it's also the gateway to the West. So that's kind of my rundown on the Hammonescent line. And we just scratched the surface. You know, there's so many cultural spots along this line we haven't even touched on, you know. I would recommend yeah. people take a look at it. Well, and we've got some more photos, folks, because a lot of the adventures that Tara and I have gone on are on this Hammonasset line. I mean, we specifically drive to places where mm -hmm. the Hammonasset lines up with certain locations. And, yeah, if you're uh, ready, we can share some of those photos, but wow, chat. And thank the, you, brother. The Native this is... Americans would do yes. their powwows along the Hammonasset line, at least the part that we've gone to. Well, the Nook, yeah. Yeah. Wow, New nice. York, yeah. We found a place in New York along the uh, Hammonasset line called the Nook, and it's on the Wasuck River. Uh, it's sort of along the border between New York and Connecticut there, right on the other side of uh, the Connecticut border. And, yeah, it's it's a neat little place behind a church that we walked down to, and we found yeah. this blue sign, you know, like they do in New York. They have these blue signs telling you what went on historically. And it said, yeah. you know, this is a place where Native Americans would uh, hold their ceremony, hold powwow and uh it's hmm. it's funny because when we we're in pennsylvania we found out that the word powwow has a different meaning um, among the pennsylvania dutch who uh by all accounts were definitely friends of the native americans and worked alongside of the native americans but the powwow magic that the amish practice is a type of like folk magic from europe that's been kind of blended uh so to speak with uh, the, the Native American wisdom mm -hmm. that they probably learned while living side by side with them. Uh, and but, the Native Americans of New yeah. England called powwows or pow powwows. That's where they said the name came from. Would uh, It was a word for shaman and a word for dreaming. Mm. So lucid dreaming. And you were just talking to Dan Winter and he was talking about lucid dreaming and and the um like the aboriginals and the native americans they would go into this trance-like state to dream uh, for their for themselves individually and for their community collectively and and they would connect with these song lines or like peter shampoo has laid out or like the ham and asset line or like these energy lines that um i guess are are like the electromagnetic forces that that when when they move and go to certain you know densities or frequencies they form the earth and these certain like anomalies and and then you know minerals and plants and animals and people pop out of them and stuff but you know what i'm you know 
Yeah, it's like what Chad showed with that the flowers mm -hmm. blooming mm -hmm. off the Hamanasset yeah. line. That's such a beautiful way to visualize it, Chad. Thanks for and the 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 giants buried in New Haven. I hadn't seen that story before, so I guess I was proven wrong. I thought I would know, I'd be a Mister Know It All uh, throughout these episodes, and uh, very quickly, Chad was like, "Hey, check this out. I had never heard about the uh, New Haven body giant bodies they'd found, and I never heard about." that norwalk giant either yeah. i had heard about the hartford one uh because it's kind of they have some sort of marker that i came across in hartford saying like you know mm. once stood here we got to go up to hartford and look for that but yeah. uh and norwalk is the is it still there yeah norwalk is interesting there's actually a certain native american community in that gold coast area that uh that's connected to the Lene Lenape people who lived all along the coast. Ross Ben writes yeah. about them uh, at length in, in his book. But yeah, there there's a contingency of them that lived along the Gold Coast. And it's kind of ironic the amount of wealth that's on the Connecticut coast now, considering uh, for the Native Americans, their currency would have been wampum or seashells, right? And Connecticut has an abundance right. of seashells in Long Island Sound. And, I mean, it's basically, you know, before these shipping ports got built, it was, you know, an abundant place with all sorts of fresh seafood. And and uh, there's piles and piles of mm -hmm. seashells on the shore from, you know, so every summer generations of natives coming along and, they would take the best looking seashells and that would go into jewelry and all sorts of different things that would have value and uh, be items of trade. And this is kind of like the, you know, economy of the Native Americans. It was centered around this uh, this thing that was so prevalent in Long Island Sound. And now look at what's prevalent in Long Island Sound, New York City, you know, the capital of the economy of America in a way. I mean, at least uh, in the eyes of most people, when they think of America, they think of New York City or they think of Los Angeles. Maybe they think of Chicago or San Francisco or well, nobody thinks of San Francisco. Roman, don't give yourself too much credit. But uh, but yeah, yeah, they, for, they sure shit do 30 years ago, maybe, but <laughs> not not anymore. Uh, not not unless you're selling. Uh, what do they call that stuff they pull out of Africa? Uh, the the. Uh, anyways, cobalt, right? Is that what they pull out of the ground? What's the what's the rare mineral that they get for all the electronics? Silicon, silicon. Quartz? No. I don't remember. Anyways. No, that's silicon is no. You know what I think we should do? Well, I think we should <laughs> I think we should take a quick break before we go into our next uh segments of information and uh we might even break this up into two episodes if we need to. So, uh let's pause and then we'll come back. Yeah. All down. right. We're back from our break. And uh here we are. Esoteric America. I don't remember what episode 18, uh, part two. So I'm considering showing you guys some strange stones because we're here on the ham and asset line topic. The trouble I'm having though, is we have so many photos of stones. <laughs> this is going to be a lot to sort through, but I'm going to try to get to 
what Tara and I found at the Whitfield uh, Nature Conservatory. This was one of our more recent uh, trips exploring. Oh, here, here's something. So earlier, Chad, you showed this really great photo of LIDAR of all the stone walls across New England. And, uh, well, not all of yeah. them, but just like a zoomed-in area. And, yeah, it's funny how this theory of these has become written off as just a colonial sort of construction when there's so many of these stone walls that show up in places where there have never been farms. Uh, also in places where you can't farm necessarily. Uh, so it's clear that these stone structures are not limited to just farms, but that's not to say that the Native Americans didn't use them for farming either because there's a really great book that I found that talks about how you know, a lot of this stone construction, when utilized correctly in a garden scenario, you know, can lead to uh, electromagnetic benefits as far as, you know, the bioconductivity, the piezoelectricity of the stones themselves actually mm -hmm. contribute to a positive environment for plant growth. So, you know, there's a thought that some of these structures are actually... Uh, stacking in a way that generates a piezoelectric charge. And what you'll notice with a lot of these Native American built stone walls is that the stones are not constructed in a neat kind of like organized cobbled way that you might see uh, in front of someone's home. Although you will see some old Native American stone walls in front of people's homes. Uh, the more modern ones are all very symmetrical or planned out and they most definitely have some sort of wet mortar uh, holding them together. Whereas the Native American stone walls have no mortar at all in them. But Again, that's not to say that the Native Americans didn't have mortar, because they did. They actually had a what they the colonists called Indian tabby, and you'll find far more information about it if you use those terms to search. But I'm going to share my screen and show you guys what I mean by one of these looser construction stone walls. So, as you can see here, there's a large variation in the stone sizes as well as their placement and their shape now this may not be a particularly conductive stone wall but it's an example of a stone wall in a place where uh, maybe there never was a farm although a lot of these trees do look pretty new uh, so this could have been a, a, a formerly a farmland but here's one stone wall and again this is certainly an old one because it's not sort of shaped symmetrically the way you see some of the farm uh, more early farm ones are because there are stone walls built by farmers but uh, anyways Native American stone walls typically also have these holes in them you see this hole there uh, this is probably for multiple reasons I mean there's a whole symbolism with where's the hole see these uh, oh i see it yes yes i see it so there's a lot of symbolism around like the various shapes and uh you know aspects of these structures but 
certain holes like this may be shaped a certain way uh, to symbolize something. They may also be uh, pointing at something or letting light in at a specific angle. Obviously, uh, some of these stone chambers are aligned to different a astronomical astronomical phenomena, but uh, here's an example of a very large stone that's integrated in one of these stone walls. I mean, my hand is kind of large uh, already, but this is a big boulder, and many of these stones that are used in the construction of these walls are so massive that you have to wonder, you know, how much work was spent building this and why if, you know, all this farmland was just ultimately abandoned. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of questions with these stone walls. There's a lot of stone walls that go straight up hills and, you know, like I said, in places where you wouldn't imagine uh, there needing to be or necessarily a place where there's good farmland to begin with so here's an example of more of a stone cairn or a stone pile uh kind of at the end of one of the stone walls in front of a great big tree here and as tara and i were walking through this forest where a lot of these pictures were taken we found a whole network of these stone walls and we even found a place where some of these stone walls were as tall as four or five feet high, almost like a fort. Uh, There's also numerous stones that were blackened, like this one seems to be burnt or blackened. Uh, maybe that's evidence of seasonal burnings, which we know Native Americans practice these seasonal burnings, and maybe these stone walls were a way of uh, mitigating the spread of the fire, right? If you have these stone walls surrounding certain areas, you can light a controlled area on fire and have maybe people standing near the stone walls to put out the fire, or maybe the stone walls would just contain the fire themselves. But there's certainly evidence of some of these being burnt. Um, and, oh, look, there's Tara up on a fallen tree. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have a lot of stones that are close to these trees that have become integrated into the roots of the trees. I, I don't know exactly what that tells mm. us, but it's just kind of fascinating to see how the trees and the rocks have these symbiotic relationships. And also, uh, as you'll see later on in some of these photos, I mean, some of these rocks, they like get stuck in the roots of the tree, but then the tree somehow grows taller than the root layer and the root layer grows upwards and the tree rock becomes like this, like, you know, chunk of rock just sticking out of a tree, like two or three feet off the ground. It's kind of perplexing, like, oh, how did the tree grow like this? But yeah, it's pretty obvious that the trees like the rocks and the rocks like the trees. I don't know. Uh, there's also a bunch of uh, quartz boulders that you'll see in these Native American stone walls. Uh, it's not kind of like a homogenous selection of one particular stone. It seems more like uh, uh, quartz stones were used towards the top as maybe a, a way of seeing these things in the dark or who knows maybe it would reflect light at certain times of day um, here's another 
example of a very massive stone being utilized in this stone construction. Uh, if they're all just put together by farmers and why would they go wasting their time putting these massive, massive stones uh, in, in, you know, when they could just use smaller ones, you know, more smaller ones, right? So here's another site, really blurry pictures. Yeah, well, we did find one stone wall that was like a pen. We found out that it was like a pen for stray animals. And uh, like the, the idea of the pound came from colonial times when farmers would let their cows just kind of wander around. And uh, there would be like these stone walls where they would bring, you know, stray cows back to so the farmer can come back and claim his cow. Um but yeah, that's just one example of maybe these stone forts or structures being, you know, kind of taken over by the colonists and, uh, you know, repurposing them. Um, here's another example of a type of stone that you see in these stone walls. And also I should notice or point out the amount of lichen growing on these stones suggests that they're very old or they've been above ground for quite a while how far away uh is this place specifically from like i don't even there's like the nearest house there's actually a golf course pretty close to here uh but this particular park is somewhere in the uh -huh. <laughs> this particular park is somewhere in like the south west corner of the state uh near a golf course but yeah um, trying to find, here's a good example of a perched boulder. We have a boulder that's very large, probably weighs, you know, several hundred pounds and it's on top of a pile of stones. And, you know, the common explanation for this is, oh, it's just, you know, the result of glaciers, but Clearly, these were significant stone structures to whoever lived here long ago, and uh, they did not get this way by accident or just by some massive weather force. I, I think these, again, are generating some sort of energy, maybe piezoelectricity because of the you know gravity or the electromagnetic pull uh, of this weight of the stone on the much smaller stones beneath it. Um, there are more sort of fantastic examples of this in places like North Salem, New York, where you have a huge, massive boulder and it's stood on top of three tiny little rocks. And I have some pictures of those that I'll show later. But yeah, here's another. Angle. Some of those places, too, with um, if they have like more of that just magnetic anomaly, like there's just more Earth energy there than. Mm. Maybe they they knew um, you know how to how to maneuver big stones uh, using the force of the earth as well, like right. leverage, but also magnetism potentially. Well, well and like here's that good old Edward Leedskellen 
Yay. And here's an example of maybe a stone that like was blown apart. I mean, look at how massive this stone is. And there's just this big clean cut right down the center of it. And I mean, unless it got struck by lightning or something, you have to wonder like how that came to be like that. Uh, but there's just so many examples of these huge stones all over Connecticut. It's so fun to just kind of look around and, and explore and, and find you know, the unique ones. And I, ha I have a lot of photos here. So I'm going to try to jump through a bunch of them. Here's me on top of that stone. Uh, there's Tara below. Um, and then. Oh, just, just saying also, man, uh, I'm going to bring it back to magnetism, magnetism again. They, uh, you can use magnetic force to literally bust open stones right well and that's and get what, clean cuts i wonder if that's involved here because a lot of these places that have significant stone structures obviously also have quarries nearby and i don't think that the quarry men would have wasted mm. their time you know moving rocks around and arranging them in funny positions i mean it's possible but you know they were working they didn't they didn't have time to play around so it seems rather they probably chose certain stone structures to maybe erase history, destroy evidence of, uh, you know, what they would mm -hmm. probably consider as like savage pagan religion or something like that. I mean, who knows, but here's a, here's an example of, uh, of a stone morphing with a tree. I think this is fascinating. It's like a quartz type of stone and <laughs> the tree is like becoming one with it. It's just so cool to see stuff like that. Um, now, Here's a good kind of example of what we see a lot of, okay? A pyramid kind of shape. You know, obviously we could read into it, but it's a very straight line. And then this stone that looks very square, very, you know, almost like this position, this place had been quarried. Uh, and we know there was a quarry nearby here, but again, like how, how, can we just assume that all quarrying was done in the last 200, 300 years? I mean, if, if men came here in the colonies and they wanted stone, well, naturally they would go to places where there were already quarries. If, you know, civilizations had been here before, you know, you, you wouldn't go and uh, just overlook an old quarry. You, you know, continue the quarrying process. So I think that's a lot of what's going on with these stone structures and this stone structure that we found in the ones near this photo uh, was on top of West Rock Mountain, which is a part of that mountain chain that Sleeping Giant is on. So, uh, so yeah, this this was a cool day when Tara and I took these pictures because uh, a coyote ran right by us as we were exploring these stones. And it was like, it could have been a, a large fox. I mean, it was colored differently than I normally am used to seeing coyotes, but it was just, you know, one of those magical uh, kind of days, right? And now here's a, a stone that's clearly mm. resting on top of another stone. The, these stones were not once the same stone. Uh, it's almost as if these massive stones had been stacked on top of each other. And again, you see this over and over again uh, with these structures. And I wonder if uh, there's a ceremonial significance to that. 
right? I mean, Roman, as you're saying, there's a, probably some magnetic capabilities that humans have. Well, Dan Winters, who we were talking to, uh, he talks about how shamans can steer tornadoes with their mind. Well, what if shamans can also levitate these stones and stack them on top of each other, right? I mean, there's stories of that. And, Exactly right. Hmm. I mean, I'm I'm making the suggestion. I'm not. So, we have to think like put ourselves in their shoes too. Like there wasn't any technology or anything. It was just them and their their bodies. Raw here, here's a, you know. Here's a good hmm. way to get a yeah, sort of gauge for how big the stone is. There's Tara next to the stone. She's about average height and. Yeah, this is this is a very massive stone, uh, again stacked on top of another one. Um, there we are, <laughs> on top of the. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think this was even like a little like cave down there, some kind of. I mean, the amount of leaves that are on top of these stones, it's hard to tell if there's like a cave in there. But yeah, it's it's uh, an example of what we would think of in the native american view of this of these stones as like a spirit portal or a gateway to the underground anytime you have like a cavity in the rocks leading into you know an underground space right um here's a really striking example of uh possibly human activity on these same rocks right this very uh angular cut uh, almost like a cross right down the center of this big massive what? stone here i mean it, it it's I would be, you know, <laughs> really blown away if somebody tried to tell me that rain did this. I mean, how does rain make this exact straight line, right? It's just crazy. But, yeah, something's been going on. And here's even a triangle cut out of the bottom of it right there. Uh, so, I don't know. Whether this means there's ancient activity going on here or maybe even just modern activity, clearly this was a place that had a lot of stone and uh people were here messing around with it these big massive stones they almost look like they had been toppled over uh here's a cairn we found right there this pile uh again there's so many leaves it's kind of hard to tell uh but this is the kind of on the slope of a hill and i'm on the bottom looking up and here is a cairn Maybe there's somebody buried underneath it. Maybe it once was taller. Uh, we can't really be sure, given the quarrying activity. It's a, a marker to know where you are, where they are. Yeah, yeah, a, a travel marker. And there's also yeah. these stone walls, of course, uh, leading to and from this place with a bunch of massive boulders. Um, so, yeah, here's some stones. Here's a nice circle cut all the way through a very big stone. I mean, that could just be um, some kind of modern thing, but some more circle cuts. They use this device called, like, I think it's called a Lewis to do this kind of stuff, or they pick up these massive boulders. And I mean, it's not totally strange to see this kind of stuff. This is uh, This is just some boulders we saw kind of piled off the side of a road uh my best guess is that it just is the result of road work and not not some sort of construction but anyways kind of cycling through photos here's another one of these weird cuts that 
I mean, kind of looks like uh, what we've seen, you know, these sort of diamond, uh, kind of oblong diamond Native American patterns that you see on certain, like, blankets and whatnot. Do you know what that kind of design or pattern is called, Tara? But you guys can see here this uh, this sort of diagonal shape cut into the stone. And yeah, yeah there's just so many uh, of these all over the place. Here's another stacked stone. Um, and uh, now we're kind of getting into some pictures that were taken along the Hammonasset line at a forest that is along the Hammonasset line. And something that you kind of pointed out, Chad, with the proximity of these things to the line, you know, I've started to wonder if the line, whether the ley line is, you know, the Hammonasset line or whatever line we're looking at on the globe, I wonder what the width of these lines are. I mean, it seems like there's some sort of even like a helix, a DNA spiral kind of helix pattern going on. Sure. And the line is just like the axes or the spine of that. But uh, because, you know, you don't sure. just find these sites lined up directly with the Hammonasset line. You find them, you know, in conjunction with the line is sort of a little distance away yep. from it. But, uh, but yeah, here's some yep. more stone walls that we found. Again, much these very massive boulders that are, it just don't make sense to, to be used. Like if... If you were building one of these stone walls, you why would you carry a huge, massive stone like that from wherever it came from just to put it, plop it down on this very short wall, you know? Unless, unless it was, you know, already there, in which case, you know, why not just leave it where it is? I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, to me, so it So do we have any in, uh, indigenous stories as to uh, the purpose of the wall or was it was it a border? No, well, there's there's definitely different theories. They were using them for farming. They were using them to, yeah, possibly uh, keep sort of certain calculations with what time of year it was, maybe also to mark borders. But I don't know if, if they would have necessarily uh, been like uh, border in the same way that we think of like property, like, oh, this is my side, this is your side. Like, uh, I don't know. But yeah. Yeah, just to have a marking maybe. Mm. Here's a field near that uh like I'm I am here at the wall or meet me at the wall. Mm. Yeah, this, there's some pretty massive stones in this field that were kind of grown over by bushes and whatnot. They're hard to see, but yeah, in this field, this is that forest behind Terra there. That's where we, all of those pictures you just saw for the most part came from. Uh, but then we find this uh, massive stone uh, Mendir in our hometown, uh, Menir, standing stone. It's like uh, huge, just taller than me. It's like seven or eight feet tall, probably weighs, you know, several hundred maybe even a ton or yeah who knows but it, the common explanation is that some farmers put it there but i really don't believe that i think yeah the farmers definitely wrote their names on it but i don't think that they put it here because we know native americans were in this area we know that they had stone structures uh in certain places around milford and right to the uh left of this stone structure 
the house, the properties all have these really old, really massive, really wide stone walls, the same type that the Native Americans would have used in maybe more of a fortification uh, sense, right? So to maybe elaborate on your question, Roman, I think the, the stone walls probably served different purposes depending on where they were. Um, here's an interesting spot that we've visited. It's not in Connecticut, so... I don't know. I shouldn't spend too much time talking about it, but Peter Shampoo calls it the solar plexus chakra. It's Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. And the chakra ley line goes down through Shelburne uh, into Connecticut at Barkhampstead Reservoir and then down to Derby, uh, which is pretty close to where we are now in Milford. So, uh, and all along that line, there are several different uh, significant locations. And along the Hammonasset line, there is a waterfall that Tara and I went to called Kent Falls. And it has the exact same potholes that you see here. Uh, Shelburne Falls is kind of uh, famous for these things, but you find these all over the place. And, you know, there's a variety of explanations for how these are formed. Some people think it's from like the water spiraling. I've heard uh, the explanation that it has to do with ball lightning striking and hitting certain minerals mm -hmm. that are in the uh, stones. So, uh, yeah, a lot of strange kind of uh, structures, again, near rivers in stone michael Wan actually showed us a similar yep, yep, stone yep. like this on the susquehanna river um bunch of them and uh anyways here's a really cool stone wall and we have this triangle shaped stone right there featured in the wall and that would have been very significant to the native mm -hmm. americans that triangle shape uh had definitely a sort of a multifaceted meaning. Yeah, it could even be a stargate. <laughs> this is yeah. this is right above a river too. So, yeah, add that one in for you. You got the flow of water. Here's definitely uh, a modern construction of a wall, but uh, but who knows? I mean, it's definitely definitely kind of reminds me of some of the unsymmetrical or asymmetrical uh, Native American walls, but. You know, there's so many examples of these stone walls that it's hard to really start to uh, figure out the difference between one or the other until you just look at so many of them that you pick up on these different similarities. Here's a stone wall that's just completely covered with moss. And uh, again, I mean, you, you can assume that, oh, no, they're just colonial cool. constructions or you can maybe broaden your horizons and, and guess they were here much longer. I mean, I don't know. Here's a stone that we found at Kent Falls, a place I just mentioned that also has a, a kind of strange groove coming. You know, I don't know how a stone gets this kind of groove in it, but it's very large. I could have stuck my whole hand in that groove. Um, there's uh, Kent Falls. It could be both too, you know. They were here for a long time. Could be both, yeah. More pictures from Kent Falls. Drawn to it because we were there before. 
Here's a picture of Terra on top of a massive boulder that's right on the Hammonasset ley line. Um, and a lot of these boulders have that's shapes, off. you know. They're shaped like certain animals. Uh, this one, I mean, I don't know. I never really thought about think of uh, interpreting that way until now. But, yeah, a lot of these boulders have different shapes to them and would have been kind of like significant markers uh, for people traveling uh, prior to roads and all this stuff, right? I mean, the, these Hammonasset line, this path, this would have probably been a, a a migration line too, to a certain extent, to go from the coast to the Great Lakes. Um, but yeah, this stone is so massive that it, you know, it's almost touching the power line. <laughs> um, here wow. is a really large single stone. And it's forming this kind of uh, waterway huh. here, a channel that goes under it. But it's just one large piece of slate there. And again, it's like so big and looks very old. You have to wonder, like, how many oxes did it take? How many men did it take to pull that? And if 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 these stones were, you know, if they are explained by those kind of ordinary means, then why don't we have the stories for how they were built, you know? So a lot of old, and this actually is right next to a Native American reservation, the Scaticoke Reservation uh, in the northwest corner of the state. It's where we found this stone wall. Uh, it seems very old. Seems like it's kind of fitting with the Native American style. And it's also along the Housatonic River. Uh, now this site that we're about to see is one of my favorite places that Tara and I have visited. Well, first of all, I mean, what do you think that looks like, folks? Is that not a turtle? <laughs> Is that not a turtle rock? Like, here's the mouth. Here's the eye right there. Uh, here's his shell. Totally. This is a huge stone outcropping in the forest. This is a Mohegan State Forest. Um, and there are a bunch of... Was it Mohegan State Forest? I don't remember. Wow, that one really looks like a turtle. Right. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, it's just... It yeah, uh, but this is this is where the Mohegan tribe, not the Mohican. Mohican is a different group of people. They may be related. I mean, just based on the name similarity, they could be related. But the Mohegans are uh, in the southeast corner of Connecticut along the Mohegan River, which wow. is now called the Thames, the River Thames. And uh, you have these standing stones. This is Wolf Rock with Tara sitting on the rock, probably not knowing I was taking that picture. Sorry, sorry, Tara. Um, uh, yeah, and this is Wolf's Rock. It's this massive rock. Obviously, you know, there's Tara in comparison to the rocks, very huge. Um, and it's situated on this, like, I don't know, kind of feminine kind of crevice i guess you sort of have this like this curvy kind of u or a v shape vagina. like a vagina or yeah i mean and this massive rock just resting right in that place it's just uh you have to wonder maybe there was something <laughs> ceremonial about this and as a matter of fact this site was where the mohegan tribe held their council and uh this is called council rock so uh, or Wolf's Rock, but the 
water, I imagine, flowing under this rock maybe is charged by the massive uh, force that's being generated by the this big weight, you know, of granite pushing up against the other two sort of protrusions of granite there. Um, there are also several other standing stones, you know, for those who think, oh, well, this is just an accident of, you know, glacial tectonics. Well, here's another massive boulder right in that same spot. Here's a standing stone sort of perched up on top of this, these smaller stones underneath it. Uh, and they're all in proximity to one another in this triangle shape so uh, maybe we would uh, we could imagine in the past a uh, tribe of native americans sort of sitting on the floor and somebody sitting standing up on one of these rocks kind of giving a speech or saying some moving words and uh yeah this would have been a place uh, of importance and you know i'm sure it had multiple reasons for being important not just the you know size and and exterior dimensions of the stone but the energetic quality of a space like this. And Tara and I spent, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, maybe an hour kind of just meditating over here. And it was really peaceful. It was really calm. We had some, uh, some really inspiring thoughts come to mind too. I remember this was a particularly, uh, musing, musing place, but, uh, yeah, here's another angle. And here's some more stones from that same forest, but these are kind of next to the nature center that's associated with the area. But uh, yeah, so many examples. I mean, geez, I'm just kind of going through my mind right now as I go from picture to picture. Here's some, I mean, I don't know what how to explain this, but it looks to me like veins. Uh, I mean, maybe it's the result of, tree roots that grow over the stone and then are removed over time or something but it's just really cool to see these and it yeah that's like uh veins. that's go ahead roman oh sorry i la lagged out there for a second um it was kind of choppy uh yeah those are those are um Ge pretty st normal geological happenings. Uh, I don't know the actual term for it, but yeah, I, I, I see that quite often on them. And it is interesting. I I don't know if it has to do with... Uh, well, let me just say Exterior, this. like physical, like water, or if it's like uh, when the rock was formed, it was created with like gaps in there. Now, I do agree with you. But here's the thing. I'm trying to sort of uh, let go of some of our conventional thoughts on geology because as Chad showed us, there were giants in these parts. And there's a very fascinating researcher named Roger Spur. Uh, he's a doctor, professor or something like that, who spends a great deal of time on his YouTube channel. Uh, trying to support his hypothesis that many of the stones that we find are fossilized body parts of giants. So with that in mind, I mean, look at the pattern on the stone and think of this as possible. Oh, before the flood. Well, that's, yeah, that's a part of his theory. I don't necessarily, you know, go along with the whole thing, but I just, I just think it's fascinating to consider these rocks as possibly once 
you know, living beings of some kind. I mean, who knows? Uh, but yeah, that's, I don't really have much mm-hmm. more to say on that. I'm, yeah. I didn't want Chad to miss that part cause it is kind of connected to what he showed us with the mountains and whatnot, but. Or they are still alive. Like. Well, yeah, I know, do. I do think they, I, consciousness. I don't, I'm yes. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean it like that, Tara. I mean like maybe our idea of being as they are now was once different than as they are now in the sense that they would have been maybe more uh, human-like. Because I I remember reading this story very long ago about how the planet was once uh, a gaseous planet and these giant gas beings whose frequency was so high uh, couldn't sort of acclimate to the changing earth and its denser frequencies as the earth's frequencies densified these beings of light and gas became solidified in crystal and stone and became the skeleton or the Mm -hmm. first layer of the earth right so you know esoterically speaking we have to keep that in mind when we look at these stones um here's a really cool stone that we found yeah, yeah, metaphysically. I love that, man. The story of the uh, Tuatha de Danan, too, is like that they um, got, you know, they retreated into the land, or they, you know, when when the Tuatha de and the Fey was being like kind of separated from its home and the battle was happening, that they just basically retreated in, you know, they, they took form of. A lot of rocks and hillsides and and things like that. So there's definitely I I am full on board with that man. I've seen too many faces in hill cliff sides, uh, <laughs> like faces in 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 the facades of some cliffs where you're just like yo, like that is absolutely so the face of an ancestor. Yeah. So check this out. <laughs> this is. <clears throat> <laughs> Hold on. Oh no, where? Okay. Can you guys see my screen? Speaking of faces, and Roman, I think you're lagging out again. So, yep. say say something when you. Oh yeah. Oh, you're back. Okay, cool. So, speaking of stone faces, this is a stone face that was found in Chicago, or near Chicago. Yeah. And it's an example of possibly a um, Phoenician artifact, like uh, maybe Phoenician sailors who would have gotten some of that copper we were talking about in the Great Lakes. They would have left one of these types of uh, carvings behind. This was some sort of, uh, Brad Olson calls it like a sacrifice stone that would have, I don't know, maybe been a ritual altar of some sort of sacrifice. I mean... I don't, uh, it's kind of gruesome to think about, but this is, again, you know, what we're looking at here with this stone structure, this esoteric stone scape, as I'm beginning to call it, are evidence for not just Native Americans' presence prior to the colonial sort of expansion, but 
other cultures that maybe were a part of the Native American culture or influenced the Native American culture in uh, more sort of uh, mutual ways than the colonists did, right? Like uh, the Norse up in Nova Scotia or uh, maybe the Chinese, as I'm beginning to learn learn about. The Chinese were here and maybe they did some pretty dastardly stuff. But here's a picture of Gunji Womp. Uh, the calendar stone at Gunjiwamp. I was there um, without permission. I don't recommend people do this, but uh, but yeah, I went there a few years ago, and this is one of the few pictures I have. I didn't. I don't know where the rest of my pictures are for Gunjiwamp, but they mysteriously disappeared. There are pictures of Gunjiwamp online. Uh, I should probably just look them up. But here's a calendar stone. Uh, very specific placement for these stones and the dolmen which was behind me as i took this picture um has a certain window in the back of it not the entrance but behind the entrance on the other side of this structure there's a, a pinhole type window where light will come through on the equinox and you know if all of these stone structures are for the most part situated along this Hammonasset line that also is in line with the equinox i mean it's literally uh if you looked at it from a like above and you put the center point at the tip of long island it would be a direct line of equinox the same angle as the line of equinox is from our perspective uh, on the ground. So, yeah, here's a, another picture of the calendar stone. Ooh, I should point this out. Here's three amazing books that we found all about the different stone structures. Mary Gage and James Gage, shout out to them. They put together these really cool books. And if it wasn't for these books, I probably wouldn't know as much as I know. And it's fun now to go out and kind of identify all of the different stone structures we find using this handbook here. But uh, yeah, this is the land of a thousand cairns, as they call it in their book. Um, here's a kind of... Oh, there you go. Here's another nice. kind of strange stone structure, very straight line there. Uh, and I always look at stuff like that and think like, that's not natural, right? We don't have straight lines like that typically in nature. So how did that form like that? Was that stacked that way? Was it positioned that way? I mean, it makes you wonder. And considering the other things we found in this area, uh, you might scratch your head and, and ask twice, you know, what's really going on? Here is a stone cairn that I found on top of that ridge that was behind Tara in this last picture. Um, oh, I'm going too fast. There it is. So, oh no. What happened? Why is it all pixelated? Can you guys see it? Might have to let it load. Yeah. Got to let it load again. Anyways, too much background story. I was trying to show you guys the that picture, but huh. The file is unsupported or corrupted. Yikes. Oi. <laughs> maybe right. it's the uh maybe it's the forest spirit though, like not, not like no. you're revealing too much. <laughs> oh no. 
All right, let's try this photo. Hopefully this one works. Yeah. I love all the stone stuff, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, any comments, guys, so I, far? I think that st stone face stone face you found in Chicago, they have, and you mentioned uh, the copper in that stone face, and you're right on with that. The closer you get up to northern Michigan and Copper Harbor and Isle Royal, there are stone faces quite often. I can think of three or four of them right off the top of my head. I got pictures of me next to these stone faces up there, but there's almost like a trail of these stone faces that lead up to the copper area. Huh. That, that one in Chicago, that one, I think that one in Chicago was found off the Chicago river, but that was basically one of them. And I don't know if it's Phoenicians or who, who did it, but most of the faces are very, very European looking. Right. You know, the majority of the faces are very European looking. And I'll, I'll try and find some pictures and send them to you at some point here in the future. And, there's there's no doubt their faces you know like we look at some of these stone escarpments and say they look like a face but it could be pareidolia or whatever these are actual faces you know carved faces so that yeah. you were right on with that well and it's interesting i said phoenician but there are other kind of stories that connect to this area like the maddock uh expedition right i mean the welsh mm -hmm. if you look at those stone faces they kind of fit in with a lot of that welsh kind of folklore symbolism they look almost like little uh, puck you know puck figures or something or like little <laughs> elves or something you know mm. well they're, yeah, they're the, also uh, water spirits faces too. go ahead roman oh sorry i'm lagging like a mug uh uh, I was going to say, oh, goodness. I can't remember Stone what I was going to say. I was going to be back when uh, Chad, Chad was bringing up some of that goodness. Uh, oh, I, oh, no, I do remember. Uh, so some of those faces that you guys, have you guys seen like some of the green man carvings that are in um, Northern Europe? Some of the, like, they kind of have that, like how the mouth was splayed open like that. It was almost like this, like, specific uh, expressive emotion that it's displaying i've seen that somewhere um specifically in some some of the structures like architectural structures in northern europe and i can't remember it might have been like skota or something but yeah i wonder because then there's that connection if that's the case to to like ancient uh uh india and stuff too that's super interesting. I was just looking at this book yesterday called Out of Place Artifacts, where it just kind of, and I was looking for a uh, New Haven specific. I was like, come on, give me some Connecticut juice. I didn't find anything. You guys know oh. what I'm talking about? Well, Oopa? you know what? I'll give you one. I mean, Chad gave, Chad gave us an Upa with the whole um, giants. I mean, technically those would be out of place yep. to the mainstream but uh not <laughs> not out of place with our alternative theories but there are stories of men who have been found buried uh long dead buried in armor suits of armor in new england and uh some people mm -hmm. connect that to the whole templar lore with newport tower oh, and whatnot but uh but yeah that would kind of be an out of place thing because we we are told that the Native Americans, for the most part, didn't uh, have metallurgy at all, right? I mean, they, they maybe had certain metals that they were able to trade and find or manipulate, but they didn't, you know, get that far in the process of uh, developing, like, steel weapons and things like that. So, you know, they must have 
come from somewhere else, right? Uh, out of place. But uh, yeah, that's a good. I feel like out of place artifacts are are one of the many things that people have uh, that we need to have like in our kind of esoteric America bingo cards. Like you know, like that's what we should oh, yeah. we should mm-hmm. create for this show. That's is, a good one. Is an esoteric America bingo card, and that way, you know, people can check off some bingo cards and be like, "Okay, I found this. I found mounds. I found out of place artifacts. I found stories of Bigfoot. Uh-huh. That's mm-hmm. three in a row. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going on the show. You know, <laughs> bingo, <laughs> secret society. That's awesome. yeah, any one. any sort of uh, boys club or like <laughs> secret club. Uh, Ooh, okay. Ooh. I got. I got. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Let's let. let Let's go. Let's create that. I got one last thing to before we wrap up because we are getting towards the end here. Uh, but I do have some files saved on my computer rather than my phone that we can look at. I think that's why there's a problem because I'm all those pictures we just looked at are on my phone, which is connected through a wire. So, oh. anyways, uh, yeah, I have some. And Chad has seen these. You both have seen these photos in the Telegram. Um, the birdstone that Tara and I found on the uh, yeah. Ammonasset line. So uh, I put together a few slides for that. <clears throat> oh. I thought we would talk about it on the show. Uh, so here we go. All right. Can you see that? Screen share is loading. Mm. Now you can see it. Yep, there we go. All right, so we're driving down a route that Tara and I have been down so many times, and I just can't stress this enough to people. It's like, you think you know where you live, you don't. Like, look around, look harder, because things like this are hiding. (laughs) And this was crazy to see this standing stone off the side of the road. I mean, I, I pulled over onto the grass so fast like tara was like what what are we doing and i'm like look there's a standing stone and this thing is at least six feet high it's approximately two feet wide uh from its face here and it has sort of like a chip in the top but let's go to a different picture um see that chip in the top i don't know kind of gave me a a sense that it was maybe at one point shaped a certain way or maybe that's shaped that way intentionally but it's very large as you can see Tara's standing behind it um, only really a foot behind it and also there's this stone with a quartz band right there um, right next to it at the base so it's sort of creating like this mm. shape there oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and those quartz bands are significant you'll see those utilized in a lot of these uh, ceremonial stone mm-hmm. structures so we find this standing stone and then sure enough I look over on the other side of this pine tree that you see there and I see what looks like a freaking stone anvil and I'm like holy moly what is this this is the angle I saw it at at first. And I was like, this is incredible. Not only is this stone massive, but it's perched on top of a much larger stone below it. Uh, and as you can see from this angle, uh, it has a very long kind of protrusion there that it's just, I mean, how often do you see a stone shape like this? It's just kind of baffling. So we find this stone and I go and I circle around it. 
I get a few photos of it, but my favorite photo uh, next to this one, me kind of uh, posing like a bird next to it, uh, is this photo. Because to me, it just looks so much like a bird. I mean, I don't. That's what I thought of, and I even mm-hmm. created another slide uh, to show. That's what I thought of too. Yeah, and Chad, you sent me a really awesome kind yeah. of picture that uh, I built off of with this one here. Can you guys see this other screen here with the birds? Are you still seeing? Yeah. It? <laughs> Hold on. Boom. There we go. Seeing you. Now you're seeing me, and now you're about to see the bird stone in <laughs> moment now. So I got to ask you, Mark, when you got up there, when you got up there on that stone, did you naturally have the inclination to fly like a bird like was that just your natural <laughs> feeling yes and i had already seen it from this angle and That's Tara, i i don't know i mean we we were both like it's a bird stone so yeah i was flapping my wings <laughs> yeah that's awesome. but as you can see on the bottom sort of corner and the left corner of the screen this is just one of many examples of native american bird stones and chad was kind enough to send me a few of these i'd never seen any of these he sent me this picture right here and another one uh but yeah this is like kind of a thing in native american culture you have these little portable stone statues and some of them are even made into like pipes you know we had this pipe stone bird here uh but to me it was really significant to put this heron above the great blue heron above the stone because uh last year tara and i saved a great blue heron that had a broken leg uh we were on a little trip driving somewhere near this area and we found a bird struggling on the side of the road and saved its life you know we saved it and this was our gift from uh from the manitow saying yeah. like okay you you saved one mm-hmm. of my children i'll give you a i'll give you a little another clue on your journey you know and next to it is uh next to it is another kind of chad you sent me this one too this I thought was cool because it's almost like the same dimensions as this stone in the sense that it has that like kind of angle coming towards the perspective and then that kind of like uh, sloping neck there. But yeah, what do you guys think of this bird stone? I think you're supposed to find it's it, man. Super fascinating. Yeah, man. That's uh <laughs> That's super cool story with the blue heron. You, have you gone into that on your show? I, I haven't never heard that story. Oh, dude. Yeah, no. We, uh, Tara and I talked about it a bunch. We talked handbook about it with Mike. Yeah, on our show that we do with Mike Wan, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. Uh, just put out a new episode of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. You can listen to it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Susquehanna Alchemy, like the river, S-U-S-Q-U-E-H-A-N-N-A. Uh, but yeah, I'll send you that episode, Roman. Uh, there's a whole story there, but uh, not not enough time to get into it here. So 
I was almost finished then, but then I remembered, okay, I, I had a conversation recently with this really cool guy that Juan introduced me to. His name's Mario Garza, a sim, symbolic studies Roman. I think you might have spoken with this guy too, but he's he's going into a lot of really interesting research about the North Star and Polaris. Oh, man, I've chatted with Mario many times. I love right. him a lot. Cool. All right, so you know him. Oh, and here's some more examples of uh, birdstones. The pop-eyed birdstones are kind of neat. Um, but anyways, I thought that this stone, when you look at it from the other direction, it kind of looks like the Great Big Dipper. And considering that, uh, you know, the the stone finger there or the beak of the bird is pointing directly where the sun sets in the west, I mean, I thought, hmm, maybe there's something to this because... A, it's aligned with the Hamanasset line. It's pointing directly towards the sunset in the west. And, you know, the Great Big Dipper is like one of the most prominent constellations in the sky because we can use it to determine the season. Not that, you know, if you if you live somewhere where it's seasonal like this, I mean, there's plenty of other signs to tell you, you know, the seasons are changing. But if it is, that's the case, then it's a, then it's a, a bear stone. Ah, and that's, the dippers of bears. Uh, and that's funny because when my aunt saw this stone, I showed my aunt and she said it looked like a bear from this angle where you see like this cleft whoa. right there and the nose and the cheek oh. of the bear, right? It kind of does look like a bear from that angle, doesn't it? When you take, oh. the, when you take that oh, yeah, side a little away, bit. it kind of wow. looks like the face of a bear. So Roman, spot on, brother. It, it's a oh, bear. and the bear came up today. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I'm just, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's just a speculation at this point. But the fact that the, you know, stone site, as you can see here, is lined up with the Hamanasset line. Uh, the line doesn't directly cross over the uh, site right there. I just did that for the visual. But it, it goes by the road and I've been very careful to not say what road this is on and not where it is because I just don't want uh, too much attention attracted to this place until I can maybe tell uh, somebody like Glenn Crisberg about it the guy who wrote all about the Hamanasset line I'm sure uh, Chad is familiar with him since you yeah there you go spirit in stone I would love to show this to him I'm I'm not sure if he's aware that nice. it exists because I've never seen any book about the Native Americans in this area mention anything about stones the way Glenn kind of talks about them. So I don't think the people who were, you know, sort of cataloging Native American life at that time would have paid attention to this kind of thing, right? So there's not a lot yeah. of No, absolutely. Examples. The codexes well, yeah, there's not a lot of examples because they were more concerned with just turning the Native Americans into Christians. So they just focused on their language, translating their language and figuring out, you know, maybe what they believed religiously and kind of using that to convert them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, outside of like Ezra Stiles, who was a president of Yale College, there weren't many people interested in the stone structures of uh, Native Americans, but, you know, Ezra does talk about these Manitou stones, these people-shaped stones, and uh, that's kind of what those triangle stones that I showed you before that's may interesting be. interesting, too, to make that connection between the, the religion 
religious philosophies and and um and the stone structures and Ezra Styles, how he was kind of like the middle man between the two, mm, right? Translating this ancient like mm. knowledge that's kind of you can't really put into words. Well, and those are the people that that we've entrusted their history. It's like what you know. It's about time we uh, we talk to the Native Americans themselves about what these structures are. You know, because back then, yeah, it was it was translated by these people who had other agendas. I mean, mostly their agenda was to Christianize, as I kind of put it, or co colonize these people and and it's not just the native americans it's happened all over the new world and africa and southeast asia australia uh, anywhere that there's been a european colony this sort of thing has gone down so uh, yeah, Connecticut, the River Colony, uh, certainly has many uh, secrets in store. We're only two episodes in, and uh, we've still got so much more to talk about. But Roman, Chad, Tara, I've done a lot of talking. You guys have any uh, any thoughts to wrap up on? Any final uh, things you want to add to the conversation before we go? <laughs> That's exciting. We talked about stones all night, man. I'm a big rock hound, and you made me want to come to Connecticut more than ever. Absolutely. I think we made a lot of cool connections tonight, the the bear connection, and I think I think we're divulging a lot of new stuff about Connecticut that nobody's ever heard before, and mm. we got two episodes to go. It's going to be sweet. Dude, thank you. Yes, you're welcome anytime. Tara and I would love to show you around. We could make a whole weekend out of it. There's enough places to to fill up a whole week, really, if we wanted to. But uh, but yeah, there there are a few places that I would love to yeah. to give people a tour of. I already have given people a tour of New Haven, so I want to just say, uh, I think next episode. Maybe we'll f set our sights on New Haven proper, the city, and just kind of look at all the architecture and maybe some of the characters. Uh, you know, P.T. Barnum, he's kind of known more for his uh, work in Bridgeport, but uh, we definitely want to have our friend on to, to talk about that. I want to find the email he sent me before we wrap up so we can give him a shout-out. Okay. I, while you're doing that, let me... Uh pull up though i have one more thing on barnum and then i'm done i found this book and i want to read this excerpt from it because it just paints this picture of honestly how i feel about the guy um and uh it's in this book that's about the fiji cannibals which was one of his final soirees it was one of his bigger he basically captured uh didn't capture he he rescued these cannibals that were being held captive in Fiji, and then he used them as part of his uh, attraction. And so it's you know one of the many 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 uh, stories of this of this guy uh, ridiculous. But kind of wanted just to since I brought him up earlier, wanted to close out with um, with this quote here. This chapter extends the previous chapter's reading of Barnum and national racial disclosure by exploring the means by which the topic of cannibalism transformed into a narrative about people and places. 
We have seen how the discourse of race, while specifically about American Indians and African Americans, but equally revealing about whiteness, operates through general practices of museum making and collecting, particularly during the late 19th century. In closing, inspecting the figure of P.T. Barnum and his social milieu, we have come to understand how his persona and enterprise embody a racist and imperialist position, a proposition uh, with which his biographers have been reluctant to grapple. His biographers, including the account in his own autobiography, have gotten him off the hook by claiming, as did Vanity Fair in the quote above, that he was merely a scapegoat for moralist. While the term scapegoat suggests that he has been unfairly targeted, it equally suggests that he has been ceremonially installed at the center of the Columbian project, a characterization which supports the basis of my argument. Barnum's biographers have also exonerated him by claiming he was simply translated pop, uh, simply translating popular taste into private profit. Building on such observations, I want to redirect our critical gaze and a pivot point of this translation. In what ways did Barnum's influential productions build upon popular opinions, and in what ways do they parallel official policy? By now, it should be clear that seemingly cutaneous events of Barnum's treatment have non-white ethnic others in profit-oriented exhibition and the response of average Americans in the press to cross-racial ex exchanges and some excessively violent, others more systemically per, uh, pernicious. Oh, pernic pernic pernicious. Pernicious. Mark. You got it. You did it. Pernicious. pernicious. There you go. <laughs> are part of a complicated mixture of issues which are tangibly and ex inextricably bound up with what emerges as imperialist, official, governmental, domestic, and foreign policy. In this chapter, I'm interested in ascertaining the means of which Barnum's presentation, a wilderness of wonderful, instructive, and amusing realities collapses into the Columbian project and the theory of manifest destiny, which gave expression to anxieties about cannibalistic devouring of out-of-control savagery and the insatiated itself in the process of swallowing and devouring as much territory and as many Indians among other non-Westerners as necessary to fulfill its expansionist mm. civilizing vision mm. yeah please send wow. me that pdf brother i'd love to love to read that because that fits right into a lot of what i'm theorizing with uh you know these universities and these people who went about studying the mm -hmm. native americans yeah, only to build this case for western expansion a spiritual war yeah Absolutely. Well, wonderful I'll way to, in the chat. to wrap that up, Roman. Thank you. I want to give a, a quick shout out to uh, Jason, who uh, whose name I forgot earlier. Sorry, Jason. He put together a really awesome presentation on P.T. Barnum, and he said he'd love to be on the show, so let's schedule it. Maybe we'll have him on uh, for our next episode or the one following that, but certainly he'll hear this and... Uh, get back to me uh, i also want to give a shout out to another listener whose name is also mark uh shout out to mark metallic he is nice he is a micmac native from new Ooh, brunswick metallic mark yeah he's a micmac native from new brunswick and apparently uh the name metallic which is i guess a play on his real last name metallic um comes from 
It's a name that originates from the family that Metacomet was from. The character we were talking about, King Philip, is what the colonists called him, and Metacomet was his uh, birth name or his given name. And uh, anyways, Mark, he shared. Oh wow! He shared that the giant beaver legend about Sugarloaf Mountain was, uh, according to Micmac legend, about his hometown. Um, maybe there's two Sugarloaf Mountains, or maybe he lives somewhere near um, Massachusetts. Sounds like he lives in New Brunswick. So maybe there's multiple legends about these beavers, um, you know, becoming mountains. But he also says in his next message, uh, he's one of the youngest fluent speakers in his native language. And uh, he's noticed that his entire history is hidden in this language, in the Micmac language, uh, our entire history, meaning the history of human beings. So I, I think this guy is someone I want to have on my show, maybe even this show when we get up into the main area, if we ever get up there, uh, I hope we do. Uh, he also says that according to the Gluskop myth legends and uh, Micmacs were called Taratines. The British colonies called the Micmacs Taratines. So how's that for all you Tartaria heads? Uh, <laughs> go follow that rabbit hole wherever it leads. <laughs> and then uh, speaking of heads, we've got a bunch of crazy people in our YouTube comments. Uh, and I want to just give a head count all <laughs> to all 26 of What's them. That? Shout out to all of you and all... Uh, Nearly 800 people who have watched the show, uh, our last episode. Shout out to everybody who's tuned in. We've re been doing really well on Thank these episodes. Um, so I just want to read a few of Absolutely. these messages because they're really nice. And some of these people live in, in New England. So let's see. Uh, I live in New England. This is Kat. Kat says, I live in New England now, but when I lived in San Diego, one of the streets I lived on was Narragansett Avenue. I've also had questions about all the stone walls everywhere. Well, hopefully this episode uh, gave you some answers and the official explanation for them. Uh, looking forward to a video on those. Well, you got it. And uh, <laughs> Woolly Mammoths. I don't know what she meant by Woolly Mammoths, but maybe we need to look and see if there's woolly mammoths somewhere in Connecticut. Oh, you know what else about that real quick, just on that topic. Go ahead. There, I just went through a rabbit hole of digging up like all these elephant rocks that are all around the world too. There's yeah, all these like that. what look like literally fossilized elephant in, in rock oh. facades, man. And, uh, Talk about giants being preserved in rocks. Yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe there is something to that there. Maybe beautiful. All right. Yeah, we should uh, look See. into that further. So then we got another one from St. Paladin77 who says we should look into the black dog of Meriden. Uh, Meriden is pretty close to New Haven. So, yeah, we should talk about that next episode. Um, let's see. Uh, we also have someone named Guyana Spice who says, you aren't crazy. I heard you on Old World Florida or Andreas Exertus's <laughs> channel. You are great. Looking forward to more. I don't do drugs, and I still respect your knowledge. 
<laughs> I don't do drugs either, Guyana. What are, we, what are we talking about here? I smoke pot. I think people are impressed that us three, us four stoners. Well, Tara doesn't smoke anymore, but us three stoners can turn churn out all this knowledge and still be uh, high. So, uh, yeah, we're we're giving a little bit of credit back to the the stoners of the world. Uh, Light one up if you're out there listening. Um, and then shout out to Jeremy, who says, What's up, Mark? I grew up in West Springfield, Mass, on the Connecticut River. Still got family there. Love this research, guys. Keep making it happen. So uh, we got a bunch of people who are loving what we're doing. They awesome. love that we're talking about Connecticut. So just a little bit of a, a shout out to them and everyone else in the in the comments. And uh Chad, Roman, thank you so much for doing this with us. Tara and I love, yeah. love this show. We love doing it every week. And, uh, you know, we weren't able to do it this past Tuesday, but we'll get back into stride and put another episode out and keep trailing, um, blazing a trail through Esoteric America. Uh, until next time, folks, thank you for tuning in and uh, happy trails. <laughs>